Happy New Year's, everyone. Happy New Year. This so, is uh, Blood and Wine. I'm Tyler. And I am Brittany. So, yeah, no, coming at you from 2019. 2019, which sounds absolutely like a fake year. Uh, uh yes. Like, yes, every it does. every time it's, it's about to be the new year or it is the new year, I'm like, wait, how is it this number? Yeah, no, I know it is the future, technically, but it sounds like... Like, the fucking Jetsons future. I think you said this, like, a couple episodes ago. Well, I and probably then, did. to correct, didn't you discover the Jetsons was really, like, in 2050 or something? I mean, yeah. I don't think I ever said the Jetsons takes place in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I thought you did. I don't something. know. I literally no have never actually watched an episode of the Jetsons. I watched a couple. Yeah, well, you were born back then, so. Yeah. So, anyway, this is our very exciting, it's New Year's Day. Yes, it is. Um, y'all are probably, you know, hung some of y'all are hungover, and uh, that's or okay. Not. We or will. Not. I will be. I will be. Obviously, this is not actually <laughs> no, New Year's this Day. Is, we're still in December. <laughs> which... We're just a few days away from New Year's. So, I know it's going to sound really boring, because I'm about to bring up the weather, um, I haven't talked about it in a while, though. Did but just not an realize update, that... It's still hot. It was in Austin. It's like the 70s in December. That's okay. It was disgusting. the 60s today. It was not the 70s. L- open your weather map right now. It says it's 70s all week. I'm just saying today it wasn't. Okay, yeah. Today I wore a sweater and was dying. <laughs> and I, I, I should be able to wear a thinnish sweater in December. Yeah, but you can't, can't, This you know, city is everywhere. wrong. <laughs> you love it's it here. R- okay. <laughs> anyway, well, it, um, seriously though, there's so much exciting, um, podcast stuff coming yes. up in 2019. Personal life things are going to be pretty awesome as well. Mm-hmm. But seriously, y'all, 2019, we're almost at a year. We, yeah, we're just a few months away from a year, which... It'll be interesting. We'll have to see, do we count a year as when we, like, started working on it or from when episode one came out? From when episode one came out. All right, so May 18th. Yeah. Um, will be a year. <laughs> so we're still, like, five and a half months away. It's But fine. it's gonna, like, go like that. Oh, it will, oh, because... I tried the, to snap and it didn't yeah, make a it sound. Was, it was bad. It was real because bad. Because the past, I guess, six and a half months have been fast. They have. Like, it's so exciting. We have a lot of stuff planned... For 2019, a lot of big things coming out very soon that we'll be able to tell you about. Yes. Um, yeah. And on that, um, just be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Yeah. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, all your major podcast platforms, yep. Stitcher, Google Play. All the things. All of them. So be sure to subscribe. New episodes every Tuesday. Well, since this is going to be one of our longer episodes, uh, which... We've done that lately. We either have kind of short episodes that are at like the hour and ten minute mark, or kind of long episodes that are at like the three hour mark. We're not doing it on purpose. It just happens. We haven't had a three hour one yet. We've gotten close. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah. So this week's topic is a special one. It's a Patreon pick topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And our Patreoner this week is the Cabernet Sauvignon Convict member Samantha she um, has been a longtime supporter yes. like we we love her she was one of our 
very first Patreon supporters. Yes, absolutely. And so, Samantha, this one is for you. Mm -hmm. So we talked with her, and she actually lives in Dubai right now. She Mm -hmm. is an expat. And has been over there for I actually don't don't know how long maybe I think a year a or so years, a couple of years maybe I don't know. um but sorry Sam we don't know but her life just seems like amazing she's an amazing woman in tech which huge shout out to that oh, because that's absolutely. always so so phenomenal uh, to see and her topic is very fitting mm-hmm. we're doing expat murders yes we are <laughs> which i think is also interesting because both of us at one time or another have also been expats yes kind of yeah more so you than me we were studying yeah. abroad but i guess i mean i was there the for thing. a year and it it counts i was looking up the definition to be like what is it and it's someone living in another country so oh. like not visiting so I would I would count study abroad as expat. It was yeah. a year. Yeah, and I was I was in London for three months. Yeah, so I, I'll count I'd that. Count it. I had to pay rent. So yeah. yeah, I'll count it. I think that that's a living. You're paying rent versus yeah. paying for a hotel. I yes. Unless you're at like an extended stay hotel, then I think you still count as expat. I mean, I I guess that's, you that's... get down to like, does it have a kitchen? Does it? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, but. Yeah. And that's in the definition. Like, if you're in a hotel that does not have a kitchen, no matter how long you stay there, you're not an expat. My God, what if it's just a shitty hotel that you live in? <laughs> well, you know. What was that one show? Shit's Creek. People lived in the hotel. What? Oh. Was it Shit's Creek where people lived in the hotel? What the fuck <laughs> yes. is Shit's Creek? Okay, well, it's a show on Netflix <laughs> where this family lives in a motel. It's oh. it's this longer. They were really Oh, they were like family, rich and they bought the town money. as a joke. Did yes. you tell me about this or did someone else? No, I did. Okay. <laughs> it's such a good show. But also, you just gave me so much shit right then, and I was actually being serious. Okay, well, all right. So, anyway, <laughs> if you guys don't know, um, Patreon is a platform where you can uh, donate to our podcast, and in exchange for your support, we do have murder mini episodes, mm-hmm. which are short, like 15 to 40 minutes is what the range is yeah. <laughs> There are a couple extra, that are not so short. <laughs> there are extra episodes. Um, right now, there are 14 additional episodes, and the only way you can listen to those is to be a Patreon supporter. Yep. We also have, we've started a little bit of a YouTube series. I don't know if we can really call it that I, yet. I wouldn't. It's, I mean, they're like little YouTube mini videos. Little mini vlogs. Little little vlogs keeping all up to date and actually you know getting to see um mm. or i guess y'all get to see us we don't yeah, get well, to see you well but yeah that's how it works anyway, anyway uh <laughs> there's also recipes and just really fun stuff and mm-hmm. on our top tier the cabernet sauvignon convicts you get to direct an episode and mm-hmm. you pick a topic so um that's what samantha has done and yeah so our patron is Pretty solid, pretty awesome, and y'all have helped this podcast grow. We're getting new equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've heard us say it all before, but seriously, we could not do this without y'all Patreon. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, jumping back into the topic, um, yeah. I thought, I think the idea of expat murders is so interesting because it it already has that whole, like, you know, you're away from home, but you are home kind of thing. Right. As well as, like... I mean, I cannot tell you how many people are like, well, if you wear rings when you go to Rome, they'll cut your fingers off to steal your rings. And I'm like, I don't think... Like, people have this idea that, like, the world outside of their comfort zone is just 
dangerous as hell. And for the most part, it's really not. No, it's I really mean, it, not. But, I mean, granted, we're doing murder cases of expats, so that doesn't really support that claim. But uh, for the most part, world's not that dangerous. And I mean, I don't know. Do you know how many expats there are? Yeah. So um, the figure in like 2017 it grew to almost 57 million. That is. Which oh. is like 75 or 0.75% of the total global population. So there are a lot of expats uh, yeah. out there. Um, and as far as your comment of the world's not a dangerous place, like, I'm sorry, I do have to disagree. I mean, the world is, is. a dangerous place, <laughs> but it's not as dangerous as people say. Well, it's not like as you turn every corner, there's a chance of death. Although, in some countries, there is. Like, I just don't want to overshadow some of the things that are going on in this world no i mean absolutely life is not safe in some countries like we're just i'm just we're extremely fortunate to where we are but i think it's also important to realize that what you see depicted of certain countries or certain places is not the everyday life you know in in certain places you may see on the news that it's just like bombings or terrorist attacks all the time there's still people that go to school that do their grocery yes, shopping. Yes, like and it's they still have a life there. It's not um it's not like you're living in just this death zone. And you know, because people do still live there and still live their lives and are happy and doing that. It's true. And I will say I wouldn't let the fear of what's out there, you know, keep you from traveling. Like no, definitely like absolutely don't not. like obviously don't you know, oh, hey, there's a war going on. I'm going to go visit that field. I don't know, wars around fields. Okay. Um, And, like, maybe don't do that. But if you're wanting to go to a country, like, for example, the riots that have been going on in France, um, Mm -hmm. specifically in Paris, I had friends that were over during that time, Mm -hmm. and they had the opportunity to cancel their trip, and they just decided, no, we'll just go. We'll just, they knew the areas to avoid. Mm And, you know, it's, you just have to be very aware when you're when you're going to an area when things oh, yeah. are happening. Just be aware of your surroundings and aware of what you're doing. Be aware, um, but be I just safe, don't be think, smart. But I don't think it's a reason to like halt no. your life, you know? Because no. and I go back to the world is a dangerous place. Like you're not going to be able to avoid it. You just have to Yeah. Stay smart. Fair. Okay. So well, for this expat murders new year's day episode what wine have you picked for us i have picked the fabulo spumante which is a prosecco because obviously we need bubbly for new year's obviously i mean classic obvious choice yeah well and one thing to note in the same way that um the cava we had quite a bit ago Mm -hmm. is Bubbly Spanish, Champagne is bubbly French from the Champagne region. Prosecco is bubbly Italian. Prosecco. Prosecco. (laughs) Prosecco is bubbly Italian. Bubbly Italian. And this one... This one's also oddly fitting for my case. You'll see in a moment why. Okay. So this one comes from a vineyard that's about an hour north of uh, Venice. So they're in northern Italy. Oh, nice. And this vineyard is located near the village of Conegliano. And it's, so it's, 
in the like the kind of highlands, I guess. Okay. Not yet the foothills of the Alps, but I don't know, heading up that way. <laughs> if you <laughs> okay. keep going north, you'll run into mountains sooner or later. Okay. So this one in particular, it is it has a refreshing acidity. And it has, like, a luscious, peachy, mineral-tinged flavors. Ooh, that sounds and good. I know. I'm so... I'm, like, so ready for this. And a classic food that it goes with is uh, prosciutto e melon, which is prosciutto oh, and melon. Which is which, phenomenal. See, I want to try you. it because I hate melons. It's because I'm gay. But... Is <laughs> <laughs> that, that a thing? No, melons. Like breasts. Oh! <laughs> oh my god. It was so obvious was... and I didn't get it. Uh, womp womp. Okay. No, but like well. honeydew, cantaloupe, watermelon, It's gr- they're gross. It's They have a gross ass like slimy <laughs> texture and so, the flavor okay. sucks. Not a fan. Well, prosciutto and melon is really, really good. Like you take a melon baller. Which I don't, does make me giggle, sorry. You take a melon baller and you wrap it in prosciutto and Just, then... You, take, you wrap the melon baller in prosciutto, not the... <laughs> no, the melon. Okay. You take the melon, you wrap it in prosciutto and it's this really, really good, like, fruity, but then like, salty. It's yeah. so good. No, I mean, it sounds fine if you like melon. Um, I want to try it. Like, I'm not opposed to trying it. Also, apparently, though, this goes really well with Chinese food takeout, especially if there's, like, roasted pork in it. So that's what you want to drink it with? I mean, I'm not the, opposed. Call the place across the street that's Ugh. really good. Yes. Guys, we found one of the only good, um, and it's actually Thai food. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, so it's Thai, quote-unquote, it's both. But we've actually found a really good one in Austin, which is not typically no. the case. Like, normally, there is plenty of amazing Asian food, but if yes, you're wanting but it's the, like, bougie and expensive. Yeah, if you're wanting the, like, typical American, like, fried rice and sesame chicken, mm-hmm. we found a place. <laughs> yes. So, this wine also goes great with chicken, fish, and creamy pastas, which, I mean, yeah, most oh, totally white wines do, especially the lighter ones. That sounds great. And I didn't mention this, but the grape is a glera grape. Okay. Never heard of that before. I haven't either. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for this. Um, you know what else it goes really great with? What? Celebrations. Celebrations. Oh. <clears throat> so I also really quickly want to read the winemaker notes. Oh, yeah. So the aroma is an inviting yellow peach, pear, and apple notes with a hint of white flowers. I I, I don't know how you could tell the color of the flowers well, by the like smell. it's like a gardenia. Okay. Sure. And again, the taste has those vibrant orchard fruit flavors and a delicate stream of bubbles and the refreshing mineral tinge finish. So I am ready and I'm about to open this bottle. Heck yeah. I think we talked about this when I was doing the kava, but I'm going to mention it again because apparently all I do these days is repeat stories. I'm an old man. You are an old man. But I just hate when people scream when you pop a champagne bottle. Oh, it's just so stupid. It's like you know what's coming. Like if you you, you are not aware that someone's popping champagne, okay, yeah, startling, that's, that's one thing. It is. If you're literally watching the person doing it, why are you screaming? And also, like, balloons. Woo! That was a pop oh and a God. process. I know. Uh, 
So we cut out a lot of it, but definitely had to get the pliers to loosen this up. It uh, was not wanting to open. No. God, but I always at, think it's crazy how wide... Um, the bottom of a cork? Of a Yeah, of a champagne cork is. Or, a, sorry, a bubbling wine. Sparkling wine. <laughs> a bubbling wine. Yeah. No, that's why I prefer to call it a bubbling wine. Well, mm-hmm. pour our bubbling wine. Ugh. That yeah. looks so good. Oh, it smells amazing. Does it? Yes. And we've got our tiny little, like... Open champagne glasses, so we're going to be filling them up every three minutes. Uh-huh. All right. All right. Yeah, and these you don't cheer with the bottoms of because you can't. You can't. So, cheers and Happy New Year. Cheers. Happy New Year. That was a really pathetic cheer. hmm It's good. It's sweet. It is not, sweeter. It's not a brute, that's for sure. No. It is sweeter. God, it's so bubbly. I mean, obviously. It is. I like this one. This is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is a good, like, drinking one. You know, sometimes yeah. you'll have bubbly, and you, you can have, like, a glass of it, but then you're like, ooh, I'm, I'm good. This one, I want to drink the whole bottle. And? We will. We will. Yes. Without further ado, Without... let's jump into your case. Let's jump into my case, because, sorry, getting my notes together. This is one that I have been wanting to do. And when Sam picked this topic, it was absolutely perfect. Mine is the case of Amanda Knox. Mm. And it's the murder of Meredith Kircher. Yes. So there are, as you can imagine, an unbelievable amount of sources out there on this. Oh, yeah. So I have narrowed it down. (laughs) I used Wikipedia, Biography, Rolling Stone, Independent, CNN... E! News, The Cut, and CBS News. Wow. So there's quite a bit. And again, like we normally say during these huge cases, we are not professional investigators. Absolutely. This is not a full overview because literally we could talk about this case for hours. Yes. And hours. Um, It just, it's one that it gripped the entire world with it being Mm. an American student that was accused of murder uh, in in Italy, which is why I said the Prosecco was very fitting mm-hmm. <laughs> for mine. But so I'm just going to start out with a little bit of an overview of um, the early life of Amanda Knox. She grew up in Seattle, Washington. Hey. She has, <laughs> yes, yes, you're Seattle. Um, she has three younger sisters. Her mom is Ida. It's it's E D D A. So it's Ida or Eda. I'm not 100 sure of the pronunciation. And her dad Kurt. They got divorced when she was young, and she also has a stepfather, father, um, Chris Mellas. So she... Pretty normal. Yeah, yeah, it's a very normal, like, typical life. Uh, she first traveled to Italy when she was 15 years old. She visited Rome, Pisa, the Amalfi Coast, and the uh, ruins of Pompeii on a family holiday, and just fell in love with Italy, yeah. which is extremely understandable. It was increased by the book Under the Tuscan Sun, which I've never read the book, but I've seen the movie, and I totally get it. Isn't, it's like, so Sandra good. Oh a lesbian in the movie or something like that? Yeah. Okay. I've, yeah. I've obviously never seen it. Well, and what's really interesting is her, love Sandra oh. her uh, wife in it is the uh, Kate Walsh. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Addison. Oh. So, anyway, it was pretty interesting. I was like, oh, well, they work together pre-grays. 
Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of Grey's. No idea when Under Test and Sun came out. So Amanda worked part-time jobs um, to fund an academic year in Italy. She wanted to study abroad when she was 20 years old. Hey, girl, same. Yeah, totally get it. So she moved to Perugia, Italy in September 2007. Mm-hmm. And she shared a four-bedroom, ground-floor apartment um, in That's a house. A big-ass apartment. Yes, she, it was big. Um, at Via della Pergola uh, 7 was their address. Okay. So her flatmates were Meredith Kircher, who was a fellow exchange student. She was from Britain, and two Italian women in their late 20s. Okay. So the four girls are living in this apartment. Amanda is, you know, traveling around Perugia, checking out the town. She ends up getting a job at a pub called Le Chic, and her boss was a man named Patrick. Why could she get a job? I wasn't allowed to get a job. I mean, you had you worked at a bar. I mean, I didn't make money. I volunteered. Yeah, but did you get paid under the table? No. Oh. I thought you at least got paid under the table. No. I got an employee discount on drinks. But, no. Discount. Not even free drinks. No. Wow, dude. Sounds like you got the shit into that stick. I think I did. <laughs> so, her boss was a man named Patrick Lumumba. And, you know, he was new new bar and he was hoping you know maybe this young american woman she's beautiful blonde hair you you know she could entice more customers to come in yeah so she's you know working just having the amazing time and their their building actually had this semi-basement and there were a few italian men that lived down there and how many people live in this building a lot okay so, so both Meredith and Amanda, they were friendly with these guys that were downstairs, and sometimes they would they would all hang out. There was one guy named Giacomo, and he and Meredith started hanging out, and Amanda would be there, and, you know, a couple other of the Italian guys that lived in this apartment. So they just hung out together. They'd go out to clubs, have fun, and one night they met a man, Rudy Gide, on a basketball court. Mm-hmm. And so they're, you know, whatever. They're kind of friendly with him. He attached himself to the group. Gide did. And over the next week or so, they would hang out. But Gide would never go into the girls' apartments. Like, Rudy was never uh, invited up there. Um, and this will play a part oh, later. Okay. So on October 20th, Meredith becomes romantically involved with Yakumo. Mm-hmm. And this is after they all went to a nightclub. And he's this hot Italian dude. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get it. Totally get it. Then on October 25th, so just five days later, Meredith and Amanda went to a theater. And this is where Amanda meets Raffaele Silicio. Mm. who was a 23-year-old student, um, you know, your kind of computer computer guy, hadn't really been much in the dating world, and he and Amanda just hit it off. Okay. They quickly, quickly fell head over heels with one another. Mm. They were together for a week, and he is showing her all around Perugia, and they're just experiencing, like, the romance of Italy together. Oh. And it's just Sounds like... Amazing. It's everything you would expect two 20-somethings oh, to do in Italy. Uh, yeah. Like, come on. Uh, and I'm still a 20-something. Do you think I could fall in love in Italy? Yeah. I mean, I think we all can. Should we? Isn't that like the plot of Under the Tuscan Sun? 
No, I mean, she goes... she, like, fall in love with herself in Italy? She definitely meets a guy and he is very gorgeous, but that's not the point of the story. Does she, like, buy a vineyard after she gets divorced or something? She buys a house, yeah, and fixes it up in the countryside, in the Tuscan country. Good for her. I know. So, on November 1st, it was a public holiday in Italy and... All of the Italians living in the city were away, um, and everyone, like, in the home. <laughs> what? Sorry, I was just picturing the Italians <laughs> desert the city. You walk down the streets, it's like you, a British person four houses down, a, like, Nigerian couple across the way, just, hello? <laughs> Anyone? Okay, I'm sorry. I meant to say the Italians were not at home. They deserted the city. So the two roommates, the men who live downstairs, like, they're all gone. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I get it. November 1st, the day the Italians left Perugia. It's in the history books. You're such a jerk. (laughs) I can't even blame it on the wine yet. (laughs) No, although you are in your second glass. Okay, I'm sorry, it's three sips. Anyway, continue. The day the Italians left Perugia. (laughs) So, Meredith is alone in the house, and she Uh returns later that evening at around, like, 9 p.m. So, just after after midday on November 2nd, Amanda called Meredith's phone, and the call was not answered. Oh. Amanda then called Romanelli, who was one of the two Italian uh, roommates that they shared the apartment with, Mm -hmm. And well, he had disappeared, so no, this is they one had of all the... Left, fled the city. <laughs> this is one of the female roommates that they live with. Okay, well, she's Italian too, she fled the city. She fled the city. Um, did. so in they have a conversation, it's like a mixture of Italian and English. And Amanda's saying that she's worried that something's happened to Meredith. As you know, when she gets back to the apartment, she noticed that the front door was open, there were blood stains including a, foot, a footprint in the bathroom, oh. and Meredith's bedroom door was closed and locked. So Amanda and Silicio then went to the house, mm-hmm. and they're still not getting any answer. Like, I think Amanda went back to his apartment and was saying, like, something weird's going on. Yeah, so together, trying to get his help. Like, yeah. Yeah, so together they go back to her her flat, and they're getting no answer from Meredith, and they're knocking on her door. So they, you know, unsuccessfully tried to break into the bedroom door and they left some damage on it as yeah. they were trying to get it open. Is it one that, like, did she have to lock it from the inside or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, she had keys to her bedroom. Oh, okay. So either, you know, it's locked from the inside or you close it shut and lock it from the outside with, with the key, key hole. Yeah. yeah. So at, at 1247, Amanda calls her mom and her mom's like, call the police. Yeah. Like, something's going on, and I was like, call the police. So, Raffaele called the police, and he finally gets through to them at about 12.51. Mm-hmm. He was recorded telling them there had been a break-in, nothing was taken, and that the emergency was that Meredith's door was locked, and she's not answering her phone, and they can't get in, and there's bloodstains. Yeah. So, two officers appeared on the scene, but they were actually postal police, what? and... So they're they're used to investigating postal crimes, not murder investigations. Why are why are they the ones who showed up? I have no idea. Okay. They entered the apartment to investigate. They kicked down the door to Meredith's room, and inside they found her body on the floor. She's oh. covered in a duvet and soaked in blood. Whoever did kill Meredith did not know how to use a knife. 
There were two wounds that were not deep enough to do any fatal damage. Um, like with the my, the knife was like catching on the bone. But on the Ooh. third try, the killer found a soft spot on the left side of her throat and plunged the blade oh. full in to like the end of it till it's hilt. And the attacker then pulls the weapon from left to right several times in this weird, like, sawing oh, motion. fuck. Up and back. And it's just leaving this gash that's over three inches long and three inches deep. Jesus. And it was just, it was clear from how savage this last blow was that it was, the intent was to kill, obviously. Yeah. Since the blade did miss her carotid artery, her agony lasted as long as ten minutes cleaning God, out. yeah. Well, because... You don't bleed. I mean, you bleed a lot from your jugular vein, but it's a vein. It oozes. It doesn't gush. Yeah. God. So it was just a a horrific scene. Investigators at the scene were immediately suspicious of Amanda. And they were asking her why she didn't raise alarm sooner. You know, she saw blood. Mm -hmm. Apparently she got home and she showered. And then that's when she starts noticing there's blood around the house. She sees the footprint. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like if you're not looking for it and if you're coming home, maybe hungover, probably exhausted. I mean, whatever. You're not going to be. Yeah. Well, and also these are people she had just met. So, I don't know about you, but when I'm living in a situation with people I don't really know, I kind of keep to myself. And no, I'm not paying attention to, oh, her door's shut and she hasn't come out while I, you know, I got home and I showered and she's still in her room. Like, no, I mean, it, and it also, unless it was like the house was doused in blood. You can be walking and not realize you walk past a bloody footprint or whatever. I mean, exactly. Well, and so once Amanda started to see things, she saw the bloody footprint. She saw a window that was broken. That is not reason enough to be like, oh, my God, why didn't you call us? Yeah. yeah. Well, and then, you know, investigators stated that this break-in looks staged, especially since nothing was stolen. Aren't they postal workers or postal police? I mean... Obviously, oh, once oh, they found like the bodies, like, the investigators came. Oh, okay. And so, and then also, Amanda and Raffaele were seen kissing and holding each other at the crime scene. And just, you know, that was seen as very suspicious behavior. But I'm also like, okay, I'm sorry. She is completely alone in a foreign country. And yeah. her roommate just got murdered. Yeah, yeah. Like, one of the few people comforting... she knows is murdered, of course, I would be hugging my boyfriend, too. Yeah. Like, I do not think that is suspicious behavior no. by any means. So over the next few days, Amanda and Raffaele were repeatedly interviewed. Uh, she told police on November 1st that she got a text from her boss, Patrick Lumumba, advising her that her evening waitressing shift was canceled. They weren't busy. He didn't need her to come in. Mm-hmm. So that's when she goes to Raffaele's apartment and stayed over... That night. And yeah. like, I mean, they're two kids hanging out, smoking pot, having sex, like just yeah. having having fun. So that's that's what they did that night. No, no. And 20 year olds acting like 20 year olds. No. Um, she didn't go back home until the next morning. And that's when Meredith's body was discovered. Yeah. She was not provided any type of legal counsel or even an interpreter. 
Um, Italian law mandates the appointment of a lawyer for someone that's being suspected of a crime. So since at this time they're just talking to her, she's not suspected of it. She has no legal counsel. On November 5th, she voluntarily went to the police station and she spent hours maintaining her original story that she had been with Raffaele um, in his flat all night. She had no knowledge of the murder, uh, but the group of police would not believe her. So Amanda later said she wasn't stressed or pressured. She was manipulated. Um, so, of course, confession. Mm. She was told by the interpreter that she probably didn't remember well because she was so trauma- traumatized. So she should try to remember something else. And again, really? just, just remember, she is an American in Italy. She speaks Italian, but... It's not her native tongue. No. This is not, you know, and obviously over the years, I'm sure her Italian got better and better. But at this point, she's still a new student over there. Yeah. It's one of those things that it's like, yeah, you can be fluent in Italian in America. But when you actually go to that country. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, it's completely different. They... They, they were convinced that she was protecting someone. So they kept just saying, who is it? Who is it? They see the message on her phone and... Again, so she texts her her boss, Patrick. He sends her a text. He's like, you don't need to come in. So she responds with, you know, basically like, okay, great. See you later. Well, I guess the conjunction that she used, the way it was said, was they were saying like, you made an appointment with him. You made an appointment. You said, well, I'll see you later. So they're like, and I mean, I'm like, yeah, again, because she is American. This is not her first language. And so they just kept digging into that. They were calling her a liar. So then Amanda said that one of the police women was saying, like, come on, come on, remember. And then she hit her. Oh, well, because regarding the text message and the police, I could understand if, like, their thought of, like, you must be lying. Because if someone had texted, like, I don't know, someone like, you know, we will meet later. In English, you'd be like, you literally set up and I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, no, I didn't know. I don't plan on meeting him. It's yeah. like, you, you, you said right here, you did. So I can see that. But what the fuck? Why would she hit her? I don't know. And, and this, of course, is debated. But um, this is what Amanda testified to. Then she's, you know, she said she got slapped again. And so under pressure, Amanda falsely stated that she'd been in the house when Meredith was killed. She signed a confession stating that she'd returned to her apartment the night of November 1st. Oh, God. And no. then, um, you know, that she had been standing in the next room while Lumumba stabbed Meredith to death. So her boss of the bar is who she alleged did it. Amanda, Raffaele, and Lumumba were taken into custody and charged with the murder. So Amanda's very first meeting with her legal counsel wasn't until November 11th. So it took him like a week? Yeah. Um, customers, however, who Lumumba had been serving at the bar obviously gave his alibi. So he was yeah. released. There were then bloodstained fingerprints of Rudy that were found on bedding underneath Meredith's body. So remember, Rudy is the friend that they met on the basketball court with the who Italian never guys, been inside. Who supposedly had never been inside. Yeah. Um, they found his fingerprints on, you know, the bedding under Meredith's body, as well as other places in her room. And as it turns out, he had fled the country. So oh. they found him in Germany and brought him back. Oh, well, literally, there's your person. So Rudy, okay. Amanda, and Raffaele were then charged with committing the murder together. Why? Oh, Literally, just... what evidence other than this coerced confession is there 
that Amanda or Raffaele were involved. The evidence in this case is exactly why this case goes so back and forth. And for those of y'all who have heard this, there's like a series of appeals and just there, it goes so deep and it's so convoluted. And I'll get into it, but the evidence is a huge factor. Okay. On November 30th, a panel of three judges endorsed the charges and ordered that Amanda and Raffaele be held in detention pending a trial. So they were in jail. Really? Yep. So in a formal interview, Amanda said that she'd been brainwashed by the investigators into accusing Lumumba and implicating herself just because Uh, of the treatment. She became the subject of unprecedented pre-trial media coverage that was in Italy. It was in America. I mean, it was absolutely everywhere. Yeah. I assume it was probably huge in the UK, too. That's where Meredith's from. Yes. It was huge there. And this just was such a media sensation. Mm. Um, Something happened in while she was in prison where they told her that she was HIV positive. And she had she had a journal that she had been writing in. And so in her journal, she writes, you know, all the people she had been with and trying to, you know, because I guess she's got to tell them. Turns out she didn't have it. Her diaries leaked. The press leaks it. So now her private life is just plastered all over the media. Jesus fucking Um, Christ. She is known as Foxy Noxie. And they're taking this angle of, you know, this American woman who's like into all these sex games and just, they're they're smearing her. Really? Like, really? Italy is smearing her for having sex with people? Like, come on. Italy is a very sexually liberated country. Yeah. It's just, it's pretty awful. And, um... Promise you, if this, if she was a man, they would not be doing this at all. And that, unfortunately, I'm sure, had a lot to do with it. This was a very misogynistic trial. Uh, yeah. And, uh, obviously, you know, we as Americans, we have very biased opinions of this. And one thing we do have to remember is that the legal systems in other countries are not yes, the same. That, yeah. But... This, you know, did involve an American citizen who was studying abroad yeah. overseas. So it was this very convoluted, um, you know, who's tell who can tell who what whose legal system is right. Yeah, I mean that's fair. Like you, I mean, under not saying that any of the media speculation stuff was right. I'm just no, all, talking that's about all like the legal stuff. Yeah, but, that's. I mean, all that's bullshit. fair. You could be. I mean, if you're found guilty in the country you did it in. Even if you wouldn't have been found guilty in the U.S., that doesn't... I mean, there are so many different legal loopholes and stuff because you are under that country's law. Law, while you're there, absolutely. I mean, in the same way that, like, you know, if I visited the UAE, technically being gay there is illegal, so I could be arrested, even though I'm, like, an American being arrested for... Like so it yeah I, but which is some bullshit. All this is just some fucking bullshit. Yeah, and I mean the like I said, the legal system is very different uh, than our system oh, here in America. Like I mean, they don't have the trial by jury of your peers. Like it's a it's like a series of judges. So there she, are like multiple judges. She's just literally sitting in jail in a foreign country, terrified, while the world learns everything they can about her. Yes. Jesus. And remember, she is like... She's 20. 20, 21, 22 at this point. I mean, yeah. she's, she's 
just a kid. Yeah. She's just a kid. So, Gide is tried separately. Mm -hmm. So, Amanda and Raffaele are tried together. Um, Gide, Rudy, I don't know. I'm saying his last name wrong, and I know I am. So, I'm just going to refer to him as Rudy. Um, Because I think it's it's either Gide or Gide. Oh, okay. Guys, I apologize. Um, He is tried separately. So, in this initial Skype conversation that he has, he says that... Amanda and Raffaele were not in the house the night of the murder. Later, he changed that and he indirectly implicated them in the murder, which he denied his involvement in. So his story starts as like, yeah, I was at the house. They weren't there to I wasn't there. They did it. So he, he really? gives both sides of the story. He was not charged with having had a knife. He didn't testify and was not questioned about his statements, which he had altered. For some reason. I don't know why they didn't. Because they're focusing and putting all their shit on Amanda. That they're just fucking tunnel visioning on anyone else. Well, he was convicted of murder. Oh. But the official judge's report on the conviction specified that he had not had the knife or stabbed the victim or stolen any of her possessions. Even though he, he wasn't questioned on any of that? Yeah. Um, he did like a fast track trial, which is something that you can do in the Italian system. And I guess it's just exactly that. It's something that happens a lot quicker. But basically, the judge found that he must have had an accomplice. Um, Again, his DNA was found all over the room. So the fact that he was there is indisputable because it's everywhere. But he was not convicted of doing the actual stabbing. And he was convicted of the murder, but it was stated that he must have had an accomplice to do so. I swear to God, if they find, like... A piece of Amanda's hair, a strand of Amanda's hair in the room. And they're like, obviously she was there and murdered him. I'm going to scream because literally she lives there. Uh, I know. She lives there. Just wait, because it is basically that ridiculous. fucking Christ. Rudy was sentenced to 30 years, which was later reduced to 16. Really? For the murder. Mm -hmm. Really? And... To this day, he is still in prison, but he's been given, like, day releases, where I guess he gets to go out and act as a normal citizen. I didn't look up exactly what applies for an Italian day release, but he does still have a few years left on his sentence. Amanda and Raffaele's first trial begins in 2009. Amanda and Raffaele pleaded not guilty in a court diocese on charges of murder, sexual assault, carrying a knife, which, again, Rudy had not been charged with. Carrying a knife is a crime? Simulating a burglary and theft of 300 euro, two credit cards, and two mobile phones. So that's everything they're being charged with. Okay. So the Perugian prosecutor, Giuliano Mignini, painted a picture of Amanda that shaped how the public saw her. He described her as this sexed, crazed, marijuana smoker who had dragged her boyfriend into a game of rough sex that ended in Meredith's murder. What? And he even called Amanda the she-devil. What the actual fuck? Yeah, so you can actually see an interview with him. By the way, there's a documentary on Netflix called Amanda Knox. It's phenomenal. It came out in 2016, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it just... As far as the evidence that they present and who they interview, it's all sides of the case. Okay. So... I, I would say it's unbiased, but it's very difficult for any type of documentary to be yeah, completely unbiased. Yeah, I don't think any documentary can be. But it's as close as you probably could yeah. get in this case. Uh, but you get to meet him, and it's he's very interesting. What the fuck? So, again, I just... This sounds such like 
misogynistic 50s, like, she smoked the reefer and had the sex and became a murderer. But in Italian. Basically. And so according to the prosecution, Amanda's first call on November 2nd to Meredith's English phone was to determine if the phone had been found. So essentially they're like, oh, she murdered him. So then she has to call her phone and see if someone has happened to recover the phone. And they said that Raffaele had tried to break into Meredith's bedroom door, not because they were trying to get in to see her. It was because they had accidentally locked it and they left some, something in there that could incriminate them. Uh, okay. Amanda's call to her mom in Seattle was about mm, 15 minutes before the body was discovered. Was, the prosecutor said it was to show that Amanda was acting as if something serious might have happened before the point in time that something serious actually did happen. Before, before an innocent person would show concern. And I'm like, no. Uh, no. If... Literally, I'd probably call mom at five minutes after something bizarre. Yeah. I'm just... If I was at my dorm in Norway... I get out of the shower, see a bloody footprint. I guess my sweet mate, whose door is never locked, is locked, and I can't get a hold of him. Also, we're close. This is a lot of ifs. I would be, I would be, I would show concern. Yeah. Like, also, they're saying, like, oh, a normal person wouldn't have shown concern. And yet, also, like, the argument of, like, well, why did she call the police sooner? Like, well, does she, should she have shown, shown, Less concerned because she's guilty or more concerned because she's guilty? Like, what Right? What the fuck are you trying to say here? I know. I know. It flip-flops so much. It's ridiculous. The prosecution had a witness, a homeless man named Antonio Curatolo, who said that Amanda and Raffaele were in a nearby square the night of the murder. So, okay. Okay. Prosecutors advanced a single piece of forensic evidence <laughs> linking Raffaele's uh, DNA to Meredith's bedroom. Fragments of his DNA were found on her bra clasp. So when you think of how a bra hooks, the clasp was literally the metal hook. Yeah. So a bit of his DNA was found on that metal hook. So, okay. So his attorney questioned how his DNA could have gotten on that little clasp, but not the fabric of the bra where it was torn off. Because it was just like, it's like it was ripped off her bra and... He's oh. like, how could you touch the hook without touching the cloth? Yeah. This bra clasp also had a lot of traces of DNA belonging to Rudy. According to the prosecution's reconstruction, Amanda attacked Meredith in her bedroom, repeatedly banged her head against a wall, forcibly held her face, and tried to strangle her. Rudy, Amanda, and Raffaele had removed Meredith's jeans, held her on her hands and knees while... Rudy sexually abused her. Meredith then... Oh, excuse me. Amanda then cut Meredith with a knife before inflicting the fatal stab wound and then faked the burglary. The judge pointedly questioned Amanda about a number of details, especially concerning her phone calls to her mom and then her Italian roommate. Mm -hmm. And then Amanda's DNA was found on the knife handle, but nowhere else in Meredith's room. I just, again... Have not heard anything that links Amanda there. Her DNA is on the knife handle. I mean, she lived there. Yeah. She probably used that to cut up an apple. Like, okay. I know. What, like, okay. The defense, they suggested that Rudy was a lone killer who had killed Meredith after breaking in. 
Yeah. Amanda's lawyers pointed out that no shoe prints, clothing fibers, hair, fingerprints, skin cells, or DNA of Amanda's were found on Meredith's body, clothes, handbag, or anywhere else in Meredith's bedroom. Which is actually pretty surprising considering they live together. Yeah. But at the same time, they didn't... I mean, they were friendly. Oh, but they weren't she probably friends. didn't sit on her bed and chit-chat. No. Well, because if you are... Strangling someone and hitting them against the wall and your holding DNA them down, your everywhere. DNA is going to be there. Exactly. The prosecution alleged that any DNA that would have implicated Amanda or Raffaele, like they would have wiped it away in Meredith's room, but which is not, not the not, knife handle. Which, but like, even <laughs> if they could have wiped away their DNA, no freaking way they could wipe away all of it. No, and also. If they were going to, the first thing they would wipe is the knife handle. Right. Like that. Well. Uh, okay. Oh and my also, God. Rudy's DNA not only was found on Meredith's bra strap, but also from a vaginal swab taken from her body. So he obviously had sex with her. Yeah. Like they're, I mean, yeah. Rudy's bloody palm print was found on the pillow. Again, like I mentioned mm. earlier. And uh, Rudy's DNA mixed with Meredith's was on the left sleeve of her bloody sweatshirt. Um, and in bloodstains found on her shoulder bag, which is where the 300 euro and two credit cards had been stolen. Literally. So Rudy's DNA, again, it's everywhere. How would you think it's anyone other than just him? Like, I know, because at this moment in time, the only evidence that they have for Amanda is her the knife handle. And for um, Raffaele, is his DNA is on the bra clasp. And apparently, Meredith's DNA was on the blade of the knife. Oh, so that's how they decided, like, oh, that's the one that her fa- that uh, Amanda's DNA is on it, Meredith's DNA is on it, that's the knife. Yes, yes, that's, okay. that's how they identified it as the murder weapon. And they found the knife at Raffaele's apartment. So, both sets of defense lawyers requested the judges to order independent reviews of the evidence, including DNA and the compatibility of the wounds with the alleged murder weapon. This request was denied. Why? Don't know. That's stupid. The final pleas to the court, Raffaele's lawyer described Amanda as this weak and fragile girl who had been duped by the police. Amanda's lawyer pointed to text messages between... Amanda and Meredith and showing that they had been friends. So, like, why would Amanda kill her? However, on December 5th, 2009, Amanda, when she was 22 years old, was convicted on charges of faking a break-in, defamation, sexual violence, and murder, and was sentenced to 26 years imprisonment. Raffaele was sentenced to 25. Wait, and Homeboy was, uh, got 16? Well, he got 30. It was later oh, okay. reduced to 16. Okay. Like, on appeals and stuff. Uh, fucking still. So, in Italy, this was seen as a simple open and shut case. But in the U.S., it was seen as this huge miscarriage of justice. It would be interesting. Because, obviously, from my reactions, and I'm gathering from yours, she's totally fucking innocent. That's very, very much what I believe. Um, and I'm about to get into, like, the appeals process and how they disputed this evidence is... It would be interesting to talk staggering. to someone who maybe, like, is Italian or was in Italy at the time and see, like, why they think that... I know. ...this person's innocent. Because... You mean guilty. Or, yeah, sorry, why they think that Amanda is guilty because... I know. From all of the evidence I've heard, no, 
Like, it, there's there's no part of this that I'm like, oh, that's questionable. The only thing is this knife that had that had Meredith's DNA being found at Raffaele's apartment, which I'm like, hmm, interesting. But I still know that DNA transfer is such an easy thing, and it's yeah. why you have it's a, why one DNA testing equipment's fucking expensive yeah. because you have to make sure it's accurate. And two, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, so now on to the first appeal. So the first verdict of guilty was not a definitive conviction. So the Corte de Assise de Pello reviews the case. And this is the appeals court. Yeah. Um, the appeal trial began November 2010, so about a year later. The court ordered... And she's been in jail this whole time. Yep. So the court ordered a review of the contested DNA evidence by independent experts, and they noted numerous basic errors in the gathering and analysis of the evidence, and concluded Called that, it. and <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, <laughs> and they concluded that no evidential trace of Meredith's DNA had been found on the alleged murder weapon, which they found in Raffaele's apartment. Yeah. So basically. The knife was tested at the same time as many of Meredith's belongings. Oh my God. Therefore, the, you know, cross-contamination is so highly likely. And the amount of DNA, of Meredith's DNA that was mm-hmm. found on the blade of the knife was so insignificant mm-hmm. that it was inconclusive. But because it's like, yeah. if that were the murder weapon, there would be her DNA on this knife. Yeah. No matter how much you tried to clean it off, it's going to be there. Well, and if it's the kind of thing that you're willing to, like, soak it in bleach, you're probably just a lot more likely to throw it away or throw it into the woods or whatever. You wouldn't put it back in a drawer at your boyfriend's house. Like, clearly, the knife was Raffaele's or Amanda brought it over to his place from hers to use for cooking. Yeah. Also... I think DNA transfer is so interesting. So, very, very short sidetrack. Yeah. Um, there was a case in Germany that um, I heard about that police found the same DNA at, like, it was, like, a dozens and dozens. I think it was, like, 40 or 50 murders. And was like, oh, my God, we have a serial killer. Like, there's a serial killer terrorizing Germany. Oh, my God. Turns out the DNA was from... This same person who worked at the cotton swab factory. It was their it, DNA. It was her DNA that had been transferred during, like, the creation or packaging of these swabs for police. That they they were testing them and finding her DNA on them. Being like, holy shit, same DNA is linking all of these. No, wow. it's just DNA transfer. And I'm like, yeah, DNA evidence is huge, but it's not infallible. It it, no. it has the same issues as every other type of evidence. You know, it can have biases around it. You have to have just evidence doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. Or it doesn't yeah. tell the whole story, at least. Yeah. You have to have a story behind it. You have to have the quanti- or the qualitative with the quantitative evidence to back it all up. Well, and the next piece of evidence that's still with this whole DNA um, analysis was the bra clasp. So this bra clasp was found 47 days after the murder. So it was found oh. in Meredith's room. And if you remember, there was only the tiny bit of Raffaele's DNA on the clasp. Yeah. Well, the defense argued that that was from DNA transfer. 
So Raffaele is trying to open the doorknob. Then later, the investigator has his glove, opens the door, and picks it up and touches it. Oh. DNA transfer. So on October 3rd, 2011, Amanda and Raffaele were found not guilty of the murder. So they reversed the conviction. Okay. Yes. In an official statement giving the grounds for the acquittals, it was said that Amanda had been confused by interviews of obsessive duration in a language she was still learning, and that forensic evidence did not support the idea that Amanda and Raffaele had been present at the murder. Absolutely. I agree. Yes. They further emphasized that Amanda's first calls raised the alarm, brought the police to the house, making the prosecution's accusation of her trying to delay the discovery of the body, like, no, Which, because she real. called. Um, because she could have very easily, if she had been guilty, just never called the police. And when questioned, been like, yeah, her door was closed, but she's a private person. Yeah. Boom. No, instead she's like, nah, I know her. Something's not right. Something's I'm going to raise right. the alarm. Exactly. So Amanda and Raffaele's accounts didn't match completely, but not enough to constitute that they'd given a false alibi. I mean, they were both being interrogated for days and hours. Like, yeah, their stories might not match up. Wow. The homeless guy who said that they were in the square near the area, they they discounted his testimony. Apparently, he was a heroin addict and, like, maybe was just doing it for attention. Like, it just, it was not a reliable, he was not a reliable witness. Mm Mm-hmm. And having noted that there was no evidence of any phone calls or texts between Amanda, Raffaele, and Rudy, the judges concluded that there was material non-existence of evidence to support the guilty verdicts. Like, they had nothing. And that um, the association that these three people would commit this murder together was so far from probable that it, no, it didn't happen. Yeah. However, the false accusation conviction in relation to her employer, so when she said Patrick Lumumba did it, Mm -hmm. that was upheld, and Judge Hellman imposed a three-year sentence, although this was nominal, because it was less time than Amanda had already served, so she was immediately released. And that, I mean... And returned home to Seattle. She did falsely convict him through confusion, so I'm like, okay, I get it, but... What? Well, and at that point, she'd already served the time. Yeah. Over the time, so it's like, okay. Yeah, sure. So, she is officially home in Seattle. And again, this is October 2011. That sounds like there's more. There that is. sounds like this is not the end. This is to, not To preface the end. this with y'all, I have obviously heard of this case. I used to live in Seattle, West Seattle in particular, and so yeah. I knew... I knew of her case. I mean, I think everyone ha- has heard of it, but I I had never really dove into it. Yeah. Oh. I knew that, like, oh, this American accused of murder in Italy, and it was, like, a thing, and yeah. And so I was always like, oh, I don't I don't know if, if she's guilty or not. She, you know, I don't know enough about the evidence, so maybe. And literally now I'm like, uh... Literally, how do you think she's guilty at all? How do you think she's anything other than a terrified, like, 20-whatever-year-old? Well, 
in let me tell you what their thinking was okay. because it's, it's fucked up. And I'm not going to like it. <laughs> so on March 26, 2013, Italy's highest court, the Supreme Court of Cassation, set aside the acquittals of the second trial on grounds that it had gone beyond the remit of the court de Cisse de Pello uh, by not ordering new DNA tests and failing to give weight to the circumstantial evidence in context, such as Amanda's accusation of Patrick Lumumba um, in the disputed interviews. What? So they ordered a retrial. So they're saying that circumstantial evidence, they didn't look hard enough and give enough weight to circumstantial evidence that yeah. is by nature circumstantial and doesn't hold that much weight. Yes. Okay. So the Supreme Court orders a retrial. Amanda was represented, but remained in the United States during this trial. Uh, Raphael, I did go. And okay. he was there every day. A new piece of evidence, which was referred to as Evidence 36I, was examined in the trial. So Evidence 36I was this minuscule piece of material that was found on the kitchen knife that Italian prosecutors believed was used to kill Meredith. I... So it's the same knife again. New testing did not find Meredith's DNA on the knife. However, experts found traces of Amanda's DNA on the handle. Amanda's legal team used the finding in her defense and just saying, again, it meant she took the knife to Raffaele's for cooking matters, kept in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, so Amanda's defense lawyer, Luca Maori, uh, told the Associated Press that it would, it's very important to know this because... It would be absurd to use it and put it back in a drawer, which is exactly what I said yes. earlier. Like, no. However, after nearly 12 hours of deliberation by an appeals court, Amanda and Raffaele were found guilty on January 30th, 2014. What? They concluded that upholding the lower court's 2009 decision against Amanda and Raffaele uh, was what should have been done. It should have never been appealed. And Raffaele was sentenced to 25 years, and Amanda was sentenced to 28.5, which is more than the first time. What the time. fuck? What, what the fuck do they have out for her? So, in, the, um, in their written explanation of why they overturned the appeal, they said that Rudy's fast-track verdict report, you know, it referenced that he had not acted alone, and that there was someone else that had helped him with this murder, and there must have been, again, they went back to this being there must have been some cleanup to remove traces of Amanda from the house while leaving Rudy's. So it's back to the, like, yes, Rudy was convicted, but he was convicted not of doing the actual murder, but partaking in the murder. Yeah, but by nature, his trial was fast-tracked, so they didn't have all the evidence. They didn't have everything they needed. Yeah. And also, it sounds like they were shitty at gathering evidence from the very fucking get-go. Oh, absolutely. So, although this guy that I'm about to talk about, he was not a part of the defense team of experts. He's just an authority on forensic use of DNA. Okay. Um, Professor Peter Gill publicly said that the case against Amanda and Raffaele was misconceived because they had a legitimate excuse for their DNA being present on the knife. Because, yeah. again, it's his fucking knife. And in the crime scene apartment. Because she lived there and he was her boyfriend. Yeah. So, because, well, yeah, I mean, it's her I mean, boyfriend and she lives there. Well, shit, it would be like uh, me being arrested for, I don't know, something happening at your apartment because my DNA is found here. Yeah, I'm here literally every day. I mean, same with mine in your apartment. Like, that's, 
so fucking stupid. So on March 27th, 2015, the ultimate appeal by Amanda and Raffaele was heard by the Supreme Court of Cassation, and it ruled that the case was without foundation and thereby definitively acquitting them of the murder. So they then went back and acquitted them again. Okay. And this is the same court that originally was like, uh-uh. Going back to the first one. Yeah. Yes. Same with the court. I don't know. I this it's like I said, it goes back and forth. It's so fucked up. It's one of those things that I will say I feel so bad for Meredith's family because yes. it's like guilty, innocent, guilty, yeah. innocent. Well, because you know they probably want her to be found guilty because it would give them closure. It'd it would them be some like type this is who did it, and all of this back and forth, and we're going back to trial. And did she do it? Did she not? They just, I mean, honestly, they just want their daughter back. Right. <sighs> right. Um, Amanda's defamation conviction was upheld, but again, she'd already done all the time for it. So yeah. she, I mean, didn't go back, of course. And rather than merely declaring that there were errors in the earlier court cases or that there was not enough evidence to convict, the court ruled that Amanda and Raffaele were innocent of involvement in the murder. So, like, completely innocent. Yeah. On September 7th, 2015, the court published their report on the acquittal, citing glaring errors, investigative amnesia, and guilty omissions, where a five-judge panel said that the prosecutors who won the original murder conviction failed to prove a whole truth to back up the scenario that Amanda and Raffaele killed Meredith. So they didn't present a case that really said the whole truth. They also stated that there were sensational failures in the investigation and that the lower court had been guilty of culpable omissions in ignoring expert testimony that demonstrated contamination of evidence. So it's like their final appeal. It finally like gets everything out. And it's like, yes, literally, that's what everyone has been saying. Everyone who's been arguing for their innocence has said all of these things. Poor fucking Amanda. Like, she literally is just this... She is this person who her roommate is... Her roommate and friend is murdered. She's thrown in jail back and forth through the courts. She gets... You know, she finally gets to come back to the U.S., but oh no, she has to go back to court. Or she has to... I mean... the, The threat of... Having to go back to jail in Italy yeah. is there. It's there, and she was found guilty. Like, and then they appealed again. Jesus. So thankfully, today Amanda does live in Seattle. Mm-hmm. She is engaged as of November of this year, so very recently oh, good for to her, her longtime boyfriend. And she congratulations, Amanda. Yes, congrats, girl. Like she's being a rock star right now. She appears at a lot of events for the Innocence Project, which she's become heavily involved in. She's also the host of the Scarlet Letter Reports, which is on Facebook oh. TV, and it talks a lot about what she went through, mm-hmm. um, especially this. You know, very. I haven't watched it yet, but mm-hmm. I was. I think it was saying that it has to do with just this misogynistic trial, like everything she went yeah. through. And uh, yeah. she also is the host of a podcast called The Truth About True Crime. Oh. And it just released its first season where she talks about the Jonestown Massacre. Oh. And, like, she interviews a lot of people that knew Jim Jones. And I just started it today oh. because I was like, uh, yes, I want to listen to this. It just, it's so far so good, beautifully produced. And she nice. also wrote a book. It's called Waiting to be Heard, a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, 
she has really been able to turn her life around, which is very fortunate because this is yeah. not the case for the majority of exonerees or no. um, people who are wrongfully convicted. Like, oftentimes they go out and they have nothing. Yeah. Um, but because of, and, and maybe this is not completely the case, but the way I see it is because of the media sensation that this case was and that she finally got back and that she's now trying to make a name um, for herself and she's, you know. Yeah. Well, and also Being very public about the, it, she's she's able God, to have a life. The strength that she has to continue and not shy away from this, because obviously, if she's hosting true crime podcasts and stuff, she's not trying to. I mean, maybe she's trying to put it behind her, but not everything. She's still like, no, right. justice needs to be served here. Like this, yeah. I may have been exonerated, but there are so many innocent people that haven't been. I, I don't know what her thoughts are. I haven't talked to her. Surprise. Would but, love to talk to her. Uh, same. One of the things about this She that... must have lived within a mile of me if she's lived in West Seattle. It's not a huge area. Uh, you may have been like her neighbor, basically. Oh my God. We might have shopped at the same QFC. You may have. Uh, <laughs> so, one of the things in this case that really gets me is, you know... Them saying that she wasn't responding correctly in the situation. Makes me so like, mad. That is one of the things that... Who is to say how sh- how someone should react in a time yeah. of like this crazy... Because, again, and I just want to put it out there. It's not like Meredith was her best friend to where she would have this huge like adverse reaction. Yeah. Meredith was someone that she had just met, hung out with a few times. They were friendly. They yeah. lived together. Well, but, I mean, I mean, I don't. I think I would be similar, like in shock, like in not shock really knowing and more how like, to respond. Oh my god, I can't believe this has happened. Not like fetal position, tears on the ground. Like, no, what are they expecting like, of her? I know. Well, and the thing is, it seems as if, regardless of how she reacted, they would have found something wrong with it. Oh yeah, like and she could have, you know. Maybe if she had reacted more with, like, showing a lot of emotion, they would have been like, oh, she's faking it. Or, oh, that shows her guilt. Obviously, she's guilty and regrets like, it's it. It's just, or... there was no winning. No. And that's no. what makes me so mad about, and like, so judging how someone reacts. so much of this shit is because she's a woman. Like, yes. if, they would not have talked about the reaction if this had been a man. Because either, oh, he's being stoic. He's not reacting, he's being stoic. Or... Oh, it's it's his friend. Obviously, he's sad. Like there, there would have been no question about it. Right. Well, and he's, you know the uh, whole the the sexual nature that was brought into oh, it yeah. with calling her Foxy Noxy. Like that makes oh, me like, sad. Oh, like, why she's, would you do that? She's promiscuous because she's a woman who's had sex outside of marriage. Shut the fuck up. Seriously, you no. would never treat a man that same way. You'd be like, ah, oh, this dude had sex with. All these women, because he's a player. Like, you're... That's what fucking pisses me off. Yeah. If you're a woman who has sex because, surprise, surprise, people have orgasms and enjoy it, you're a whore, you're a slut. If you're a man, you're a stud, you're a player. It is... Shut the fuck the up. the worst double standard. There are so many double standards, and that one just pisses me off so much. Off. I saw a, um, a post that just fucking pissed me off the other day, that it was... It was talking about, like... I bet, uh, I bet marrying a virgin is the same feeling of buying a new car versus a used one. Oh, and someone my commented God. on it and was like, today in women news, 
what are we be or what inanimate object are we being compared to? Cars, apparently. And it pisses me the fuck off. Yeah. Because I obviously don't like live that every day. I'm I am only a witness to it. But yeah. fucking oh my god. I the fact that you have to tell people today or ever that women are people. What? I know. I, know. I mean, like, obviously, I'm, as a woman who lives this day in and yeah, day out. You, you I mean, are much more an expert in this than I am. Well, like but. I said, the other day, um, and I texted you about this, I, and I'm not going to go into the full story, but essentially, I went somewhere, I asked for help, ended up getting screamed at by the male manager, and I was at an auto place, and it was because I was questioning things, I was asking questions, and I'm like... Yeah, I know I'm a woman and you're trying to take advantage of me because you think I don't know what I'm asking, but I need your help because something is broken and needs fixed and I it's that is not something I can do. It doesn't mean I don't know what needs to be done. Oh I do. God. And I um yeah, I just it was one of those things where I was like I'm getting screamed at right now because I'm a woman and I'm seen as inferior. Yeah. Had I had it literally been the exact same situation and I had been asking questions that would not have been the reaction. No. Wouldn't have happened. Well, I am Fucking... so, so happy to say that that final appeal was yes. the absolute last. It was the highest court. Good. This can never go back again. Um, Amanda and Raffaele are completely free. And, you know, and again. Rudy's in jail like he should be. And, and whether or not he had help by someone unknown, he. No. Yeah. You know, he's doing his time, and when he's out, he's out. I think he's doing, like, being a model prisoner, maybe not completely model, but, you know, I'm just really glad that I feel justice was served. I do think Amanda's completely innocent. And it's one of those things that it's it's terrifying. This is something that can happen when you go Mm -hmm. and live in another country. Yeah. You you have to follow their laws and just... You're subject to... You can fall into things like this. You're subject to different laws and... A different Not that she wasn't system. following those, those laws. She was following them. She was. Like, I'm just saying, like, you're subject to their laws. That's yeah. the phrase I mean. Well, and, like, it's a different legal system. It's not the, like, oh, you get arrested, you get a lawyer, you yeah. go to trial by jury and stuff like that. Like, it's, for other countries, it might not be the same. Yeah. And that is something that I absolutely didn't and won't. But, you know, maybe it is a good idea before having an extended stay in another country to look up, like, what does the legal system even look like? You know, if I do get arrested, do I get a lawyer? Does this, you know, is this, what what does this even look like? It's a smart thing to do. I suggest it. I'm not going to. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I will say there's also another book that's like, I think it's called like The Fatal Attraction of Beauty. It's a book that was written about the case that I really want to read. This mm-hmm. is one that's just so fascinating because, again, it's a very young American woman who spent time in prison for something that she didn't do. Yeah. So it takes that wrongfully convicted to this scary international level. That's yeah. just... When she's very much a relatable person. She's just... She was a 20-year-old college student studying abroad in a country she loves. Yeah. And I mean, I was 20 and studying abroad in the country I love. Like I that, know. I was in my young 20s living in a country studying abroad. Like, yeah. Um, and she's only a few years older than me. So, like, that's oh. what makes this terrifying. I think she's, like, two years older than I am. 
So it's just very scary. Having been in a very similar situation, like young 20s, living in another country, yeah. being female, like not speaking the language of where I traveled. I spoke the language when I lived in London, but I traveled uh, a lot. Yeah. I was all over Europe. Yeah. Didn't speak all of those languages. I didn't, so, I didn't speak Norwegian when I went there, but that's okay. Most people spoke English. Yeah. So anyway, that is the case of Amanda Knox and... um one thing I do, last thing I want to say is I definitely feel for Meredith's family, like I mentioned, Absolutely. with everything that they've gone through. And yeah. it's one of the things that not only with this case going back into the courts over and over, did it bring this up for Amanda and Raffaele, but it brought it up again for Meredith's family. Like over it, and it over. dug this up again. And as far as, again, you know, how they feel about um, the guilt or innocence of Amanda and Raffaele, I, I don't necessarily know um to be honest in the netflix documentary they they aren't in there as much and Mm -hmm. it's more so just the focus of like how difficult it is on them yeah and you know my heart hurts for them that this absolutely again this is a very similar Mm -hmm. case like oj where it came about oj and not about the victim yeah in this one it's different because amanda was also a victim she was very innocent so was Raffaele, and so was meredith so it yeah. just, it's sad. It's its so sad when the media, when something gets so sensationalized, how the mm-hmm. focus changes from, you know, the whole picture yeah. to, it pinpoints like one thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Fuck. Well, uh, I'm empty. You're almost empty. I'm so... almost empty. I've got like a sip left. Uh, yeah, I think it's time to pop the second bottle. I think it is. All right, I've I've finished my glass, so I'm ready for more. Mmm, bubbles. <laughs> you know, this is dangerous drinking bubbles the night before. I mean, night before work. But in my yeah. head, I was thinking I also have a work holiday party tomorrow. I don't. I'll be at home alone, crying. I already had my work holiday party though. I tell you what, this Prosecco is so good. It's a really, really great one. Fabulo. I bet that means fabulous in Italian. It is the fabulous Fumante. I agree. All right. So what case do you have for me? So I took a little bit of liberty with the expat murders and just kind of did it as like abroad murders because it's our New Year's episode. I wanted to pick a really big one and I've been really wanting to do this one. For a long time and i think i know what one you're talking about <laughs> it's not necessarily a murder it absolutely is but in my opinion but te- legally it is not a murder well a yet. lot of the times it's not a murder until you find a body so that's a yeah. lot of them so the case i chose is the disappearance of natalie holloway oh my gosh which also it's interesting we both picked cases that very much were a, like, media sensation. Yeah. Like, that gripped onto it. Yeah. The likes of, that. the only case similar that I can remember is um, Casey Anthony. Oh, yeah, that time. one was huge, too. Um, but That was huge. Yeah, but to me, like, the those are the three big media cases that I can remember. Because there were... I know there have been some. I remember, like, huge news around 
and I'm sorry, I cannot remember her name, but the girl who was kidnapped for like 12 years and escaped in, I want to say Ohio. Um, I, mm. I can't remember her name, but that was a big media sensation for yeah. a while, like for a bit, but not like these that I remember. Well, and also Scott Peterson, because so, that was like early 2000s. So I remember the names Scott Peterson and Lacey Peterson. I do not remember hearing anything about the cases. But also the early 2000s, I, I was in like elementary to middle school. Well, and for me, I was in high school. So like yeah. that was, I was old enough again where I was paying yeah. a little bit of attention to what was going yeah. on in the world. Well, like not when, as much as I should have been. But When this happened, when Natalie Holloway disappeared, I was in... It's when she disappeared, I had just finished sixth grade, and it was like the summer yeah. between six and seven. But I remember this one very specifically. Well, if we talk about, like, going back to Amanda Knox, I was in college when all of that was happening. Like, I graduated in 2010, mm-hmm. and so part of it was when I was, you know, after school, then before I went to grad school. Mm-hmm. But, like, when she was... Mm-hmm. You know, first convicted, etc. I was a student. And I just remember being like, oh my God. And I didn't study abroad in undergrad. I did in yeah. grad school. But it's just like crazy. Well, and there was the case recently with Chris Watts. Oh, super who, recently. Yeah. Who murdered his wife and kids. And I feel like that was a big media sensation, but not in the same vein. Not in the same vein no. because it was not a trial that was lengthy. Like, it it was actually a very quick case in comparison to some of the other ones we just mentioned. Um, Well, and I'll I'll get into it towards the end of mine, the media, but it was a thing, and I have a lot of opinions on it. Yeah. Um, Well, hop into your case. Yes. The sources I used were Wikipedia, Vanity Fair, and ABC News. I love it when... Magazines like Vanity Fair and Elle and oh, whatnot they do, the do big like do big articles. Yes, because like they have some phenomenal writers and editors. Oh my god! And yes, I, I love getting to see them showcase their talents mm-hmm. in you know other mediums. Because mm-hmm. unfortunately, I think there are a lot of people who think that you know fashion isn't as interesting and doesn't yeah, require they're as like, much oh, writing. Oh, Vanity Fair, what which... going to tell me like the ten greens I should wear this season? And it's like, okay. uh, no. But also, number one. Even like like fashion blogging, like that's there is so much to know. I mean, yeah. Like it, that is there is a reason there are people that specialize in that. Well, and like Teen Vogue, which the past few years has been one of the most important and real political like pieces out there. They I know earlier this year they did a lot of stories. About things that people wouldn't consider in the scope of, like, a teen. It's like, yeah. after the Stoneman Douglas shootings, they did a lot of articles about gun control and about how teens feel about that. And it it's they so do important. a lot of stuff about, like, women's health and yes. women in politics. It's insane. And it's Teen Vogue. It's, it's mm-hmm. a magazine that, I mean, before really knowing... About it, I was like, oh, so it's like the fancier version of, you know, Seventeen or Tiger Beat, where it's like, which Zac Efron haircut's the cutest? But no, it's a hugely yeah. important publication that, yeah, it's a Teen Vogue, but 
just because it's for teenagers does not diminish its importance at all. And in fact, in many ways, increases it. It does. But, oh, well, I, and like, lo- when, I love it. Teen Vogue, I stan. Oh, absolutely. And I didn't read a lot of Teen Vogue when I was a teenager. I read Seventeen. I had a subscription to Seventeen. And, and I will say, I learned so much about my body and puberty mm-hmm. and what I was going through as a teenager from 17. So, yeah. like, these magazines are insanely legit and, like, mm. super praise to the people who do them because mm. not only do you stay up with the fashion yeah. trends that are ever-changing, yeah. but also, like, providing educational material and political yeah. material and, like, things that people need to know mm-hmm. growing up in well, those and, formative years. And I don't think you know this, but one of the things that helped me, like, figure out my sexuality and become okay with it was actually reading your i think it was yours like you had a bunch of copies of old cosmos yeah that i would i would read through it 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 just helped me like like learn more and i don't know become okay with my sexuality that's uh, which awesome was i never cute. knew that yeah no i would um i don't know if it was like when you were at work or something but i would sneak into your room oh and you had God. like a cardboard box in your closet it was just filled with like dozens of Cosmos. Yeah. And I, I would had, just sit I on the floor and read them. Yeah, I did. I had a subscription to Cosmopolitan when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I think it was like my senior year in high school. Because yeah, because I was like. I still lived at home. I was like sixth grade or something. Yeah. Sixth, seventh grade. Well, and that was another one that, you know, once I graduated from 17 where I'm like, I'm a woman now. Um, I got Cosmopolitan and I think I did that without mama's permission because I was using my own money and I was like, you know what? I'm paying for this. I can, I can get this magazine if I want. And while I learned a lot about sex, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a very positive thing for me to know these things as a freaking 18 year old girl, like, or a woman. I should have known those things. No, absolutely. And you can laugh at the things that are like 128 ways to give your man an orgasm, but that shit's important. It's, it's stupid to think that sex is not a hugely important part of many people's lives and being knowledgeable about it is so important. It blows my mind that so many people think that the way to protect young people from STIs and early pregnancy is just hide all of this from them. And I'm like, literally the way no, to protect people from the worst them thing is to, to do. teach them everything about it and have access to contraception. Literally, if you make sex something that is not hush, hush, ooh, secret, then young people are probably a lot less likely to go ahead and do it because it's just another thing. They're more likely to take it seriously and be safe with it. Absolutely. When they know. Because if you don't teach young people the safe ways to to have sex, they're going to do it anyway. Well, yeah. This is something that you know from being a teenager. Everyone knows Mm -hmm. teenagers are going to have sex. Like, there are a few people that won't, but more often than not... They're going to try things. They're and, going through puberty. Like, they're sexually curious. Well, and the ones that are going to be smart about it and be a lot less likely to have a pregnancy scare when they're a teenager and they don't want it or contract an STI 
are the ones that know what to do, that know not only what a male condom is and how to use it, but what a female condom is. I didn't know what the fuck a female condom was until my 20s. Well, then, like, how many people... Perfect example, the whole episode of Friends where they're freaking out because condoms are, like, 97% act, uh, protected against yeah. pregnancy. Yeah. That's... That, that's something that you, you absolutely should teach your teenagers. Well, and that is true. The only contraceptive that is 100% effective is not having sex. True. That is true. I mean, like, yes, like things like IUDs, etc. They yeah. have like a 99%. Like, they're up mm-hmm. there. But but if you are someone who, you know, you feel you're at a place with, the, with someone that you want to be sexually active, you feel you take that on... Absolutely look at taking birth control and also using a condom. I mean, because... Yeah, because birth control does not stop... Like, the pill does Mm -hmm. not prevent STIs. It does not prevent STIs. It's like 90... If used correctly, like 99% effective against pregnancies. But using a contraceptive method like the pill along with something like a condom is... I mean, you can make it essentially almost zero. Yeah. The risk. And it's just, it's so fucking important to have this conversation with your kids. I I am obviously not a parent, but dear God, I hope even if my kid was 13 and came to me and being like, oh, I am planning on having sex with my significant other. First off, we're, I'm going to make sure they understand the risks, like but also let means. them know that... You know, you should be wearing a condom or you should, you know, like, whatever, you yeah. know. Anyway, yeah. I am very... Long su- tangent, but... Well, and I'm also surprised we've made it this far on the podcast not having the sex conversation, yeah. so... Sorry, in case you didn't know at this point, I'm a, I'm very sex positive. I think the knowledge is super important. I think people should be very liberated but Absolutely. knowledgeable about sex. It's, 100%. It's part of our society. Yeah, it's, it's weird to talk about, but... Okay, lots of things are weird to talk about. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about them. Like, and and again, that goes to your whole point of educating teenagers when they're going through those absolutely. formative years about sex. And about how to do it safe. And about the enjoyment of it as well. And not yeah. it as this bad negative thing because it's no. not. Like, it's a very and pleasurable... You're going to give your kids a fucking complex if you teach them, like, this is bad. You feel good, but it's bad because it's the devil clawing at your soul. Shut up. Like, things feel good because our bodies are made for them to feel good. Like, don't... You you shouldn't feel bad about that. You should just be responsible. Yeah. Well, it was a very long tangent from a... But a good uh, one. The fact that I have a Vanity Fair article as a source. Hey, it's all good. Yes. So, now that we've had that tangent... Yeah. Now get into your case. Okay. So, Natalie Holloway. This is a very famous case, but I thought I knew a lot about this case. I absolutely didn't. Um... I know I don't know as much as you're about to tell me. So, Natalie Holloway is a typical high school student from Mountain Brook, Alabama. She had recently graduated with honors from the Mountain Brook High School. She was a member of the National Honor Society. She was on the dance squad. And she she was just in a lot of extracurricular activities. She was your yeah. typical high school student. Um, and yeah, she was scheduled... Yeah, she was scheduled to attend the University of Alabama on a full scholarship, which is Dang, fucking you awesome. go, girl! I know. As much as I hate the Rolling Tide because... It's Bama. Ew, Don't it's like them. Sorry if any of y'all are fans. 
Um, anyway, so she was going to go to the University of Alabama <laughs> on a full scholarship, and she was going to do pre-med, which is intense and awesome. That is. So Thursday, May 26th of 2005, she's just graduated high school. It is her final summer before college. She and 124 other graduates from her high school uh, take a trip to Aruba for a five-day graduation trip. God, that sounds amazing. I never got to any kind of graduation trip. I didn't either. Because I worked that whole fucking summer between. But damn, that would have been so awesome. Same. So the 125 teenagers are accompanied by seven chaperones that are, I think most of them are teachers from the school. So it's yeah. like an unofficial, tri- unofficial trip. Yeah. But, like, the teachers are also involved, so it's not that unofficial. Yeah. Um, and according to Bob Plummer, who was a teacher and one of the chaperones, the chaperones would meet with the students each day to make sure everything was fine, but wouldn't, like, keep track of them. Like, where, were you, where are you going to be at 1130? Okay, what about 12? But, like... They're fucking, they're adults at this point. Yeah. They're about to go into college, about to be on their own. Yeah. They're, you know, check in with us. We're going to make sure you're all okay and stuff, but you're in Aruba. Do Aruba. Do Aruba. Although, I mean, obviously they drank, but I wonder how that worked. With, like, the teachers being chaperones and, like, they're 18, but I'm sure they were drinking. Oh, absolutely. That's... What I'm about to get into. Oh, okay. Yep. Sorry. So the students like got into wild partying, a lot of drinking, a lot of room switching every night. And Natalie, like any 18 year old would do while on vacation in paradise, drank all day, every day. Yeah. So police would later say that she started off every morning with cocktails. Again, same. Uh, I mean, not now, but like on vacation. <laughs> on vacation, on vacation. <laughs> not if like before I go to work. But <laughs> if Same, I'm, if I'm in, I've got to add that Bailey's in my coffee. Mm-hmm, no. no. But if I'm in Aruba for five days, you damn right I'm waking up with a mimosa. Absolutely, why not? And it was apparently so much drinking that she didn't show up for breakfast two mornings, which I'm like, one, maybe she wanted to sleep in. She's on vacation. Leave her the fuck alone. Yeah. Two, maybe she's hungover. sorry, she's hungover. She's 18. Like, okay, and... Um, and two of her classmates, Liz Kane and Claire Fairman, agreed that the drinking was kind of excessive, which you're 18 on I mean, vacation I'm sure in Aruba. Like, yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm sure it is. The, the way that some of the stars were saying this was like, oh my God, she is this crazy party girl. And I'm like, literally sounds like any 18 year old in a place where drinking, where they're of drinking age now. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. Cool. She's at, she's with her friends on, like, this island paradise. She gonna drink. It's legal there. Like, wh- why the fuck would she not? I know. It's true. This is, like, the, you know, we're, you know, we're all going off to different colleges. We might never see each other again. Let's have this last huge party. Like, I don't know. It, it, it was annoying me how a lot of the sources were saying it. Yeah. So, Natalie was seen by her classmates at about 1.30 a.m. on Monday, May 30th. So, like, basically the last day of their trip. Yeah. Um, as she was seen leaving the Orangiste Bar and nightclub, Carlos and Charlie's. Which, if you didn't know this, there's going to be a lot of Dutch-sounding things. 
because Aruba used to be like a Dutch island. And I think it oh. still is like a provincial territory of the Netherlands. Or it they work very closely with the Netherlands. Oh. Um, but yeah, so you're going to see a lot. So she left the bar and club in a car with 17-year-old Jeroen van der Sloot, who is a Dutch honors student who is living in Aruba and attending the International School of Aruba. Also, Aruba is an island of like 70,000 people. So it's the size of like a small town. Oh. Well, I guess not a small town. A, a large. Medium? A small city slash large town. Yeah. Um, but so she was seen leaving the car with Jean Vandersloot and his two friends, 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo, who was the owner of the car, and 18-year-old Satish Kalpo. They were both brothers. Okay. So a little after 11 a.m. local time um, on Monday, May 30th, Natalie's mother, Beth, is driving home from Arkansas, or driving home to Alabama uh, after a weekend with some friends in in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Yeah. And her phone rings. The person on the line is Jody Behrman. Who is one of the seven adults who is the the chaperones. And Beth is trying to figure out what Behrman's saying. She's saying that Natalie had not appeared at the Holiday Inn lobby for the return flight. Natalie wasn't there. No one had seen her since she left the bar the night before. Yeah. Shit. What a phone call. So any other mother might have thought that, you know, maybe her daughter's still out partying maybe she's passed out in someone's hotel room but beth said that i knew immediately that my daughter had been kidnapped in aruba and natalie has never been late in her life just fucking insane that is Uh, but from what i said earlier about natalie during school i'm like i mean honor student dance class extracurricular activities i'm like "Mm, okay Yeah. yeah yeah She might have been a very type A person. Yeah. So, in her own words, Beth didn't panic. She became extremely focused. She, after getting the call, she calls 911 and she tells the dispatcher that her daughter has been kidnapped and she is driving 110 miles an hour straight through Mississippi. She is going to get home and she's not stopping for any reason. And... She then calls her husband, Natalie's stepdad, George Jug Twitty, and she also calls the FBI. Wait, the, how do you call the FBI? I don't know. I you assume just, if you Google FBI, you can probably, probably get, like, number? maybe it's the reception. I don't know. Hi, but, Federal Bureau of Investigation. This is Peggy. <laughs> Hi, Peggy. Thank you so much. Can you get me to the kidnapping's office? One moment. Speaking of which, I just did... Kijal didn't realize. I just did a little, like, switchboard operator motion with my hands. Um, so, this is unrelated, and I will finish the sidetrack very soon. But did y'all see the thing? It was for y'all, it be a couple weeks ago, of the Google CEO trying to explain Google to the, like, congressional committee. Because, no. oh... My God. So one of them is holding up his iPhone. He's like, so 
you know, if I have my iPhone and I walk over to my friend over there, can the Google see where I went? And the CEO of Google, he's trying to explain, like, well, it depends on the settings on the phone. He was like, well, can an app see? And he's like, it it depends on what you agreed on in the app. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, Google will ask for your location services for, like, Google Maps and shit, but I, I don't know. And then another one, he says something, he mentions an iPhone, and the CEO's like, that's, that's another product, it's owned by Apple, I don't, I, I don't know, that's not, <laughs> and the, the Senator of Congressman is like, well, I mean, maybe it was an Android, and the CEO's like, I don't, I, I don't know what you're asking, <laughs> like, what, what? And then they start asking, like, why, if, if you search idiot, on images, why does Trump show up? Why does a picture of Donald Trump show up? And he's like, listen, our code scours and sees like what reactions are, like the traffic at any given time, like what the most popular things are, and yeah. links it together. And they're like, so there's not a little man who's behind there, like, you know, fixing a the results. A little man. Yeah. What and the, and hell? He, the CEO's like, no. And the image I get is that, like, do they assume that Google, when you type something in, there's, like, a switchboard operator who's like, Google search, please hold. Google search, please hold. Like, no. Anyway, sorry. Oh, my God. A little man. A little man. You know what I always think of when they talk about, like, a little man? I think of Men in Black, when there's, like, the little alien that was living inside, like, the human body, but it was, like, the head. And he's like... Ryan. Yes. <laughs> I love that movie. It's so good. I know you do. It's so good. Stop. Will Smith is like a bamf. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That yes. Okay. I need to get back to my case. Yes, you do. Um and also Natalie's missing. So Natalie's it's a, missing. It's a thing. Her mom is driving hundred and ten yeah. miles an hour and she's yeah. not stopping. So by the time And Beth, I get it. Uh, absolutely. I get it. So by the time Beth gets to Alabama, a family friend has already arranged for a private jet. Go because she friend. is, uh, yeah. And yes. Beth is this. Talk about boss showing ass, up. Like, mm, yeah. So by five o'clock, she is on the jet along with Jug, uh, who's her husband and two of Jug's longtime friends. And yeah. they're heading to Aruba. And they Which left unfortunately a, sounds like it should be so much more fun than it really is. Yeah, taking but, a private jet with your husband and friends to Aruba. Yeah. No. Uh, they God, left a seat empty family. for the return trip. Of course. For Natalie. Because it's for Natalie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, we're going to go pick her up. We're going to find her. We, we're going to find yeah. her. We need a seat. Mm-hmm. So the jet lands in Aruba at about 10 p.m. So within four hours of landing on the island, the Twitties presented the Aruban police with the name and address of Vandersloot as the person with whom Natalie left the nightclub. Like yep. they knew, they got there, and within four hours, oh, they like, knew this is who she was last with. They got their info. So Beth stated that Vandersloot's full name was given to her by the night manager at the Holiday Inn, um, who supposedly had recognized him on a videotape, which again. This island is 70,000 people. It's not that crazy for it. Like, instead of thinking it as an island country, think of it more as 
a town where everyone kind of knows everyone. Yeah. Like it, because, yeah. So the Twitties and their friends went to Vandersloot's home uh, with two Aruban policemen to look for Natalie. Vandersloot initially denied knowing Natalie's name at all, but then he told a story that was collaborated by Deepak Kalpo, um, who was also at the house. So oh, the okay. one who was driving. Yeah, was also yeah, there yeah. at the house. So the story was that they had driven Natalie to the California lighthouse area of Arashi Beach because she wanted to see some sharks. Again, it's also like 2 a.m., so okay. Um, I they, don't want to see sharks ever. Uh, no. They later dropped her off at the hotel around 2 a.m., and according to Vandersloot, Natalie fell down as she exited the car, but she refused his help. And he stated that as he and Calpo were driving away, Natalie was approached by a dark man in a black shirt, similar to those that were worn by the security guards. Oh. That was his story. So the search and rescue efforts for Natalie began immediately. Of course. Hundreds of volunteers from the U.S. and Aruba joined the effort and even 50 Dutch Marines conducted an extensive search of the shoreline. Uh, some of the banks in Aruba raised $20,000 and provided <gasps> other support to aid in volunteer search teams. Wow. I mean, everyone is turning out to find her. Yes. And Beth was actually provided housing while she was there looking for her daughter. And coincidentally, at the Holiday Inn, in the same room that Natalie had been in. Which is just fucking no, creepy. No, that's creepy. Um, and I don't know if she knew that. I don't know. Uh, but it was just, it was like a coincidence. It wasn't like an on-purpose thing, which yeah. is just fucking weird. It is. So reports indicated that Natalie did not appear on any of the nighttime surveillance camera footage from the hotel. Uh, or from the hotel's lobby. Yeah. Um, however... Beth has made varying statements as to whether the cameras were operational that night. Um, in an April 19th, 06 statement that she made, the video cameras at the Holiday Inn were not functioning the night that Natalie vanished. Um, she's made other statements that indicated they were working. But... Beth, the mom was saying this? Yeah. So Beth... The, Why is she the one accounting whether the... The parents and the family... was. Very involved in the investigation, and I'll get into it a little bit later. Okay, okay. Um, but either way, <laughs> the police commissioner, Jan van der Straten, uh, said that Natalie didn't have to go through the lobby to return to her room. So, oh, it, you know, whether she was seen on a lobby camera or not, that's not definitive. Or, or I guess evidence. whether she wasn't seen on it. Whether it was working or not isn't definitive whether right. she was there. Yeah. So the search for physical evidence was extensive and it was also like many cases subject to occasional false leads. Yeah. Um, for example, there was a possible blood sample taken from Deepak Kalpo's car, but the test determined that it wasn't blood. So they're, but they're fucking oh. searching everything. And that, that was the car that she was last seen getting into. Right, right. Yeah. So, from the early days of the investigation, the American law enforcement was participating in wide-ranging involvement with this case. Mm -hmm. And U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice had, was stating to reporters that the U.S. was in constant contact with the Aruban authorities. So, on June 9th of 2005, 
So, like, ten days after Natalie's disappearance. Okay. Van der Sloot and the Calpo brothers were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping and murdering Natalie. Oh, my God. The Aruban law allows for investigators to make an arrest based on serious suspicion. Okay, so just because they were the last ones that had been known with her, uh, that was enough suspicion? Yeah. Okay. And in order to continue holding the suspects in custody, an increasing evidential burden must be met at periodic reviews. So they have so they have reviews. They have to have, have evidence to show at that each like one. yes, they're you know we think they're guilty because X and Y and like progressing evidence. Yeah. Okay. So close observation of the three men had began three days after Natalie was reported missing, and the investigation included surveillance telephone wiretaps, and even monitoring of their email. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, I mean, I guess it's... It's a murder investigation. Well, I guess it's a missing person investigation with suspected murder. And it's not America. Yeah. So privacy, not really a thing. As, As much, yeah. So pressure from Natalie's family caused the police to prematurely stop their surveillance and detain three suspects. Oh, so they stopped looking and took them. Yeah. Took them in. So during the time that they were in jail, the suspects changed their stories. All three of the suspects initially indicated that Vandersloot and Natalie were dropped off at the Marriott Hotel Beach. So not the Holiday Inn. And Vandersloot stated that he did not harm Natalie, but he did leave her on the beach. What the fuck? Yeah. According to Satish Kalpo's attorney, Vandersloot called Deepak Kalpo to tell him that he was walking home and he sent him a text about 40 minutes later. And at some time during the interrogation, Vandersloot detailed another account that he was dropped off at home and Natalie was driven off by the Kalpo brothers. So first okay. he's saying like, Oh, we were both dropped off at the beach here. And then he's saying like, oh, you know, Natalie was at the beach, but I left her there and I walked home. And now he's saying that like, oh, they dropped me off at home and then Natalie went with them. So following hearings before a judge, Deepak and Satish Kalpo were released on Monday, July 4th. But they were later rearrested on August 26th on suspicion of rape and murder. While this whole time Vandersloot had remained in custody, he and the Kalpos were released on September 3rd because of a lack of evidence. So in the months following his release, Vandersloot gave several interviews that explained his version of events, the most notable being a lengthy interview with Fox News that aired in March of 2006. Okay. During this interview, Vandersloot indicated that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he didn't because he didn't have a condom. He's such an upstanding man. Okay. Um, <laughs> Vandersloot then stated that Natalie wanted them to stay on the beach, but that since he had to go and he had to go to school the next morning, you know, because he's a student. Right. According to Vandersloot, he was picked up by Satish Kalpo at about three a.m. And he left Natalie sitting on the beach. Vandersloot stated that, you know, he was somewhat ashamed of having left a young woman alone on the beach, albeit by her own request. 
and related that he was not truthful at first because he was convinced that Natalie would soon turn up. So, you know, he's saying like, oh, you know, we were going to hook up, but then we didn't. I had to go, but she wanted to stay on the beach. You know, she was a little upset and felt bad about having to leave her, but I did. And, you know, I I lied initially because she's going to shut. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So after Natalie's disappearance, her investigators searched everywhere. This included flying fighter jets over the island, searching the ocean around the island, draining a pond that it was believed she could have been dumped in, searching the sand dunes, and going to a landfill three times with cadaver dogs to search her. Oh my god. Where? she and aruba is a small island no yeah that's not big so in 2006 at aruba's request the netherlands took over the investigation they were just like please take this yeah. we well, don't know what to do anymore netherlands is a com- is a country of millions of people they have so many more resources yeah. than this small island so exactly they're absolutely. like we have done like, what we, we can do help. and we need you So, following the receipt of extensive case documentation in Rotterdam, a team of Dutch National Police started working on the case in September of 06. Then, on April 16th of 2007, a combined Aruban-Dutch team began pursuing the investigation in Aruba. Yeah. So, on April 27th of 2007, so it's like 11 days later, a new search involving approximately 20 investigators was launched at the Vandersloot family residence in Aruba. Dutch authorities searched the yard and surrounding area using shovels and thin metal rods to penetrate the dirt, looking for her buried body. Like Jackie did. Like Jackie did in, yeah. In Cold Valley. Exactly like that. Wow. Which is what that made me think of. No, and also, if I hadn't have watched Cold Valley, I would not have understood what you were saying. Yeah. So a prosecution spokeswoman said that The investigation has never stopped, and the Dutch authorities are completely reviewing the case for new indications. A statement from the prosecutor's office related, The team has indications that justify a more thorough search. Uh, But investigators didn't comment on what prompted this new search. Yeah. So on May 12th of 2007, the Calpo family home was subject to a search. The two brothers were detained for about an hour after... Um, after they objected to the entry by police and Dutch investigators. Mm -hmm. But they were both released when authorities left. Um, A statement was issued that indicated the purpose of the visit was to get a better image of the place or circumstances where an offense may have been committed and to understand the chain of events leading to the offense. Okay. So it sounds very general to me yeah it's like well we gotta figure out what happened before to know what happened when it happened yeah so aruban investigators cited what was described as newly discovered evidence and van der Schloot and the kalpo brothers were re-arrested on november 21st 2007 oh, on suspicion of involvement in manslaughter and causing serious bodily harm that resulted in the death of Natalie Holloway. Oh my gosh. So van der Schloot, who had moved to the Netherlands for school, was detained by Dutch authorities in the Netherlands, and the Kalpo brothers were detained in Aruba. Van der Schloot 
was returned to Aruba and incarcerated. Oh my gosh. So, on November 30th, 2007, nine days later, a judge ordered the release of Satish and Deepak Kalpo, despite attempts by the prosecution to extend their duration the two brothers were released the following day. Okay. Why? So they keep getting released. Because yeah, there's... it's like they're being arrested, they're being released, they're being yeah. arrested, they're being released. Like, And it's it sounds like the police think they have enough evidence, and the judges are like, you literally don't. You you don't. Yeah. You've got to let them go. Van der Sloot was released without charge on December 7th of 2007 due to the lack of evidence implicating him as well as a lack of evidence that Natalie died as a result of a violent crime, because they still haven't found her. No, like, they, they don't have her body. So on December 18th of 07, Prosecutor Hans Moss officially declared the case closed and that no charges would be filed due to lack of evidence. Oh. The prosecution indicated a continuing interest in the Kalpos and Van der Sloot although legally they had ceased to be suspects, and they alleged that one of the three in a chat room message had stated that Natalie was dead. (gasps) So, yeah, they're still monitoring them and, like, yeah. They're still watching them. So, on January 31st of 2008, Dutch crime reporter Peter R. De Vries claimed that he had solved the Natalie Holloway case. Okay. De Vries stated that he would tell all on a special television program on Dutch TV on February 3rd. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He's uh, like, I've is... solved it. I'll tell everyone February 3rd if you tune into Dutch TV. Like, that is so suspect that mm. no. So February 1st, the Dutch media reported that van der Sloot had made a confession regarding the disappearance of Natalie. And that same day, the Aruba Prosecutor's Office announced the reopening of the case. Okay. So, this broadcast airs on February 3rd of 2008, and it included excerpts from footage that was recorded on hidden cameras and microphones. Von der Schlut was seen smoking marijuana and stating that he was with Natalie and she began convulsively shaking. Then she became unresponsive. What? Van der Schloot stated that he attempted to revive her, but wasn't successful. What? He, yeah. He said that he then called a friend who told Van der Schloot to go home and he would dispose of the body. What? So. I'm so sorry. This is whoa. Uh, oh, I know. So the individual who was this friend who was talking about was identified to be uh, someone named Dari who denied van der Schloot's account because he was in Rotterdam at the time in school. He's like, yo, wasn't there. He's like, Wait, the so why is van der Schloot making this up? I have no what it se- what, okay, idea. Okay, from what I perceive at the moment as made up. Yeah. Oh, no, it very much seems made but up. But it, it's like he's, he's implicating himself. But, but he's, just not mm, enough. But not enough. Yeah. But he's making this up. I am real confused. Uh, Same. Everyone is. Everyone Everyone. is. So the Aruban prosecutor's office attempted to obtain an arrest warrant for van der Schloot based on these tapes, but a judge denied the request because this is not enough evidence and the evidence that is there does not support what he's saying. Yeah. 
So February 8th of 2008, van der Sloot met with Aruban investigators in the Netherlands and denied what he said on the tape was true. He said he was under the influence of marijuana at the time, and he indicated that he still maintains that he left Natalie at the beach. So he was like, oh, I didn't mean that. I was just high. I was just high. Which, like, really? You were so high you created this story? Okay. No. So, November 24th of 2008, Fox News aired another interview with von der Schlute in which he alleged that he sold Natalie into sexual slavery and received money both when she was taken and later to keep quiet. He Va- created another story? <laughs> von der Schlute. What the fuck is going on with this dude? Oh, yeah. Von der Schlute also alleged that his father paid off two police officers that uh, who had learned that Natalie was taken to Venezuela for this sex slavery. And von der Schlute later retracted these statements that he made in the interview. He's like, I sold her to sex slavery. Just kidding. Like, um, this show also aired as part of an audio recording that was provided by von der Schlute, uh, that he alleged was a phone call between him and his dad in which his dad displays knowledge of his son's purported involvement with human trafficking. What? Yeah. So. What? Yeah. I feel so much for the family because they've gone from, she's kidnapped, maybe she's dead, and now it's like, oh, maybe she was sold into sex slavery, which is horrible, but she could still be alive. Yeah. She could still be saved. and now he's saying, like, oh, it's a lie. Oh, here's this phone call. Like, what the oh fuck is God. going on? Just stop. So February 23rd of 2010. This is almost five years after she disappeared. Yeah. Van der Sloot stated in an interview that he disposed of Natalie's body in a marsh in Aruba. I'm sorry. Why? Why does he keep changing his story? I have no idea. He this changes is... it so much. It's like every couple mm-hmm. years he's like, actually, this is what happened. So the new chief prosecutor in the case, Peter Blanken, indicated that authorities had investigated this latest story and dismissed it, stating that the locations, names, and times he gave just don't make sense. Yeah. So he's just making shit up right now. Is it for attention? That's I don't what know. I don't get. I'm like, you, why, why are you doing this? Where you're potentially implicating yourself for things that you maybe or maybe didn't do why maybe because he knows what actually happened and he knows making this shit up there's no way they're gonna prove it but he's gonna get some airtime i have no idea i don't i don't know that's a theory but march 29th of 2010 van der contacted john q kelly who was beth twitty's legal representative Beth is Natalie's mom. mom, Yeah. With an offer to reveal the location of Natalie's body and the circumstances surrounding her death if he's given an advance of $25,000 against a total of $250,000. So Kelly immediately goes to the FBI and they arrange to proceed with the transaction. Okay. Then on May 10th, Van der Sloot had a $15,000 wire transfer to his account in the Netherlands after receiving $10,000. So he got $25,000 in cash that was 
All of this was videotaped by undercover investigators in Aruba. Authorities stated that the information he provided in return was false because the house that he said Natalie's body was located hadn't even been built at the time of her disappearance. This fucking guy. So on June 3rd, Vondersloot was charged in the U.S. District Court of Northern Alabama for extortion and wire fraud. Yeah. Because they're like, what the fuck, dude? Granted, he's still in Aruba. He's, so they're charging him, but he's not there. He's uh-huh. still in Aruba. So May 30th of 2010, about two months later, five years to the day of Natalie's disappearance, Stephanie Tatiana Flores Ramirez, who's a 21-year-old business student, was reported missing in Lima, Peru. <gasps> she was found dead three days later in a hotel room that was registered in Vandersloot's name. Oh my god. On June 3rd, Vandersloot was arrested in Chile on a murder charge and was extradited to Peru the next day. Yeah. June 7th, Peruvian authorities said that Vandersloot confessed to killing Flores after he lost his temper because she accessed his laptop without permission and found information linking him to Natalie. Oh my god. Yeah. This dude is a fucking creep. He's a fucking monster. And oh remember, he was 17 when he met Natalie. This is uh, five years later. So he's what, 22. So June 11th of 2010 of this year, Vandersloot was charged in the Lima Superior Court with first degree murder and robbery. And in a September 2011 interview from the prison, Vandersloot reportedly admitted to the extortion plot saying, I wanted to get back at Natalie's family. Her parents have been making my life tough for five years. Okay, well, sounds like it's because you did something. And on January 11th of 2012, Vandersloot pleaded guilty to murdering Ramirez (laughs) and was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Oh my gosh. On January 12th of 2012. Also, well, just wanted to say, I find it very interesting that in both of our cases... When it comes to, like, you murdered someone, you get 20-something years in prison. Yeah. And in America, it's like... You murdered them, life. Life or death penalty. Mm -hmm. Like, there really doesn't seem to be much of a... Or it's one of those where it's like, you get 70 or you get 230 years. Yeah. You know, where it's just the sentences that pile on. Mm Mm-hmm. Just, wow. So, on January 12th of 2012... Natalie Holloway was declared by a U.S. judge to be dead. Because they'd never seen her or found any any evidence of her being alive? No evidence of her remains has ever been found. One thing about this case that was really controversial was the media coverage. Yeah. Because for months... When you turned on the news to CNN, Nancy Grace, to the local, like anything, anything, it was about Natalie Holloway disappeared in Aruba. Where is she? Little, the tiniest evidence was reported across all of the news for months to a point where I believe Anderson Cooper called it like a media circus. Like he was ridiculous. Yeah. Because. This is horrible. This is an 18-year-old woman who vanished. But, like, this was the news story for months and months. I know. The only thing that took this 
uh, down from like the number one news spot was Hurricane Katrina in August of 2005. Oh my god. Th- what, three months after? Yeah. And is is a perfect example of what some people call missing white girl syndrome, which is when a, yeah. a white girl or a white woman goes missing. Holy shit, this is a global tragedy. And it absolutely is a tragedy, not to diminish no, any of not that. To this is that. a person missing. But the fact that a person of color missing gets no news coverage at all. None. People of color go missing or are killed every day. But a uh, a beautiful blonde white woman goes missing. And it is the top story for months and months. And it... Just thinking about... I just... There sometimes I sit and I think and I'm like... How did the world, like, how did this happen? Like, how did we, and I know how, but I mean, like, why? Like, why did this happen? Why did skin color become something that determines who's better and who's not? And why are we defining better and not better? Like, yeah, I just, it's one of those things that sometimes if you sit back and think about it, it's so scary Mm -hmm. and so disturbing. I just don't get it. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with people? And it's it's something that I can I can see the injustice and see how fucked up it is and how disgusting it is. But as a white person, I can never even begin to imagine what it's I like know. to live that every day. No. What it's like to think that, hmm, no idea. if I went missing, people wouldn't necessarily care. You know, my family would care, but it might be on local news one night, too. And then not like it, the way that race is treated in the Western world is fucking disgusting. It is. I mean, it, the fact that it is common, people of color are treated as lesser because of what? And the fact that people every fucking day, white people around are like, white privilege doesn't exist. I still struggled. No. I still was poor. And I'm like, you may have struggled. No one's denying that. You may have been poor. No one is denying that. Yeah. You did not struggle. You were not poor because of the color of your skin. Exactly. That is white privilege. Yes. I may have not gotten a job. Uh, you know, I may have failed the interview. I know. I never had. It never has to cross my mind that I failed the interview because of the color of my skin. Yeah. It's because something about your qualifications or some answer like you gave wasn't It's right. never a thing that... Pops into my mind, and me more so because also gender doesn't come into my mind. I never have to think, oh, I didn't get that interview because of my gender. It's true, you know. And it it's just fucking disgusting that yes. so many there are so many people who live their lives saying like, oh, race doesn't affect me. I've never had to think about race, and it's like, yeah, it's because you're white and yeah. you live in Western society. That yeah, you don't have to think about your race every day. You don't have to think about getting pulled over by the police is it because of the color of my skin you don't have to teach your children okay if you know if a police officer tells you to stop you you don't say anything you do that you know you don't have to have that conversation with your kids to make sure they don't get shot the how to deal with the police conversation i i grew up always Always thinking of like, oh, if I'm in trouble, I should find a police officer. 
I should go. That is safety. Po- the police represent safety. Yeah. And for people of color, that's not the same. That's the opposite. There, of the same. there are you see stories every single day of children of of color who are shot because a police officer was scared because they were threatened. They they felt they were threatening. Yeah. And I by no means want anyone to think that I I think all police officers are racist. Absolutely not. I think that the way that society is is inherently racist. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that we we can't change what has happened in the past, but fuck, if we can be aware of it, we can change it now. We can change it moving forward. And it's a long process, but fuck, we can do something about it. That is um, the story of the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. And when is the most recent, like, update? Most recent update was 2012. Wow. Yeah. So it's been quite a while mm-hmm. since they've so vocalized anything. Yeah, and I, I don't know if... I don't know where the investigation is... I hope they haven't stopped it just because Van der Sloot is in jail for the murder in Peru because well, 20-something years is not that long. No. You know, he'll, he'd be, what, 50 or something when he gets out? Yeah. It's not that old. Still a lot of life left in him. Yeah. So do you want to jump into postmortem? Yeah. You go first. I don't know what I want to say. Uh, Well, both of these cases are... Absolutely ones of of two American women who were victims of things happening when they were supposed to be having fun mm-hmm. and a really great time and like the time of their yeah. life. And, y- you know, while the story of Natalie Holloway is, it's, it's hard because we don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that... The case of Amanda Knox and Meredith Kircher is, and, and Raffaello Silicio, it's even more intense because there are so many victims. I agree. I I think Because that... it's like everyone in the story is a victim in some way, form, or fashion. Even Rudy, because, again, he wasn't convicted of being a sole murderer, and and the evidence for him being a sole murderer is not 100% there. Because yeah. if we look at it with the knife that was found, which I do not think was the murder weapon no. at all. It no. was just a knife in the kitchen. So, like, the murder weapon still hasn't been found. So, as far as what he's been convicted of, you know. Anyway, I mean, yeah. who's to say for that? I, but, I, but I think the number of victims yeah. makes my no, case a little I, bit I would more. agree because, because Meredith Kircher was brutally murdered she was um amanda knox was for all intents and purposes framed by the italian authorities in this town almost like yeah yeah i mean it they tunnel visioned on her so hard any evidence they found that could in any way possibly be construed to point to her obviously that is crucial evidence any evidence that pointed to anyone but her, yep, that's that's misleading. That's not real evidence. They tunnel visioned well, like, on yeah, her Amanda and Raffaele so yep. hard that yep. they are the people who did it. 
And so these two innocent people spent years of their lives in prison. Of their in their young twenties. Yeah. When I was, you know, getting an internship, graduating school, getting my first job, the same point in her life, she's sitting in an Italian jail for a crime she didn't do. Yeah. Because yeah. the investigators had decided that first day she was guilty. Yeah. She did this. And any evidence we find is going to point to that. Yes. Or else it's not real evidence. Yes. And just the back and forth, like I said, as much of a struggle that that was for uh, Meredith's family and then Amanda's family and Raffaele's family, like, it's Mm -hmm. just insane. Yeah. And the fact that... To be completely honest, I still don't completely understand why they convicted them a second time. No. I I don't get it. I'm like, okay, wait, just because Rudy supposedly had people helping him. And obviously, of course, my research was not deep enough into, like, all the legal everything. No, yeah, but but from the evidence presented, Rudy must have had help. So obviously these two are guilty because they were our suspects. What? I know. It's like, I'm sorry, but still, also, the actual... Maybe Rudy did have help. Maybe it was literally anyone other than these two people who you, for some reason, want to put everything on. That you just keep, like, fixating on. And it's like, uh, from what I look at it, the murder weapon still isn't found. So how are you really convicting people of this? Well, and the fact that Amanda today is involved in true crime investigations and is not shying away from that world is so fucking impressive. It is. And y'all, seriously though, check out her podcast, The yeah. Truth About True Crime. It's awesome. I, I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm absolutely going to. Yeah. Well, I absolutely think um, you won. Um, but this, God, <laughs> Happy New Year's, I guess. Happy New Uh, Year's, y'all. Don't let any of this dissuade you from traveling. No, don't. I want to let y'all know how... experience the world, do it. It was not easy to find expat murders. Yeah. I I looked for a while. That's one of the reasons why I kind of had to, like, bend my definition a little bit. Because there there was a case not that long ago yeah. of uh, an American student who was murdered by her roommate in the Netherlands. Um, I didn't pick that one because it's very recent, so there's not a lot of evidence out there. Yeah. But when I was looking up expat murders or study abroad murders, it was the murder of Meredith Kircher or this case that happened just recently and not a lot else. Yeah. There was one I found yeah. that happened in Rome that maybe the guy was murdered. Maybe he just drowned. There wasn't a whole lot of that. Yeah. But, so don't let any of this dissuade you from traveling. Traveling's an amazing experience. It is. But, you know, I don't know. Be safe out there, y'all. Be also, safe. Happy New Year's. Be 2019, safe. don't get murdered. Happy New Year's. Don't get murdered. So with that, this has been a very long episode. Hope you all enjoyed it. Yes. Hope you, this, I think this is a great way to ring in the new year with a long-ass blood and wine episode. Long-ass episode. And Cure that hangover. You'll be okay. Yay. Promise. Get some sleep. 
Yeah, I um, am not looking forward to work in the morning because I'm sure y'all can tell, but bubbly gets me fucked up real bad. Well, it just, it's like it goes to your head more. It does, and you drink a lot of it quicker well, it's because easy, it's it's like a it's like a drink. No big it's like deal. sipping on a sipping on a sprite. Sipping on a sprite. Except it's alcohol. Yes. Drink well, responsibly. <laughs> don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Um, Do and it. with that, XOXO. Blood, wine, sun, and off. Bye. Bye.